we make every industry, including the art industry, a public industry, and that we regular, rig, rig, what's the word I'm trying to say? God damn. You're breaking that. <laughs> no, uh, no, I'm going to say rigorous. Rig, rig, why can't I say this word? Give it to me. Oh my God. Mujahideen. <laughs> okay. That word. Say it with me. That word. Um, rigorous. Rigorously regulate. <laughs> no, we're, we're gonna work through this. Come on, give me a good one. I need it for the audio. Rigorously. Oh, I got it. Rigor, rigorously. Rigorously. I hope you leave all those attempts in, Mike. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Cool. I'm gonna start a podcast myself, Sterling. So you know, like yeah. you know how I eat edibles all the time and watch dope shit. That's what I <laughs> yeah. do. And uh, like all these people like hit me up, like I'm on edibles. What should I watch tonight? So I'm gonna start doing a podcast where I like do movie reviews, but like on edibles. And and like Zed's dad's already said they come on it. Diplo's gonna come on it. That's dope. And the, so my whole premise is these animators are making shit for people that are tripping their balls off. Yeah. And passing it off as kids' movies. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no way you can tell me that manta ray glowing the fuck out in fucking Moana isn't fucking psychedelic. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's psychedelic. And fucking and kids are just like, yeah. And I'm like, no, that's trippy as fuck. That goddamn, uh, you know, the giant fucking crab thing that's in Moana that's dancing, but oh, it's drone. It's from, Fly to, from Fly to the Concords. What's his name? Yeah, Fly to the Concords. Yeah. That's one of the most yeah, brilliant lines of our generation. Yeah, for sure. He's awesome. Mystery Heights yeah. Theater 3000. That's what you got to Yeah, sort of like that. But like, we're not going to be able to, you know, because you got to license the clips and shit. So we're not going to actually show yeah. the clips. We're just going to show our reactions to watching them. So yeah. the whole drama of the thing is like me trying to explain why things are intensely psychedelic and then like Diplo coming on and being like you're high as fuck MJ this just like cool animation there's nothing psychedelic going on here so that's basically the whole premise of the show and I think it's gonna go fucking awesome I can't wait that's funny no that's dope man I'm yeah I'm glad to help out any uh, guidance you need getting yeah, everything set up I mean, you, saw, you saw how much it fucking Tell me to get on here. I don't know anything about podcasting. <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. Edible worthy. That's what it's going to be called. Edible worthy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. I'm going to give it like ratings, like five pop brownies or three and a half pop brownies, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, <clears throat> when I've done psychedelics, I never really watched like movies or, or TV shows. Oh, I just kind of go out and But I did one one time. I started. Uh, I I went on this thing where I did DMT like every day for two months, and like, yeah. uh, which is wow, ridiculous. I just joined in on yeah. this conversation. Good, good, good timing. Good timing. <laughs> so there was like this two months period where I was basically smoking DMT like every day, and I just I watched. I just watched avatar over and over and found oh, new yeah. experiences yeah. every time yeah. <laughs> i got a fucking uh meme up on my instagram stories right now where it's like you blast off and then uh dmt spirits we've been trying to reach you about your car warranty <laughs> so mj and chris you guys are both in the music industry as well we got a long history actually so chris used to be a producer and a dj here and uh, then he moved away to 
to uh, work for the man. <laughs> and uh, we started a company called Artist Hunt together, which also would be a great thing to bring up about, you know, putting the resources back in artists' hands. Um, so uh, it's basically a booking platform, so to say, where uh, we also do like virtual EPKs. So instead of like a DJ or a band or whatever, having to pay a thousand dollars to some graphics company to make an EPK for them. We do all that for them on the app, on the site. And then they can just send that EPK directly to talent buyers, uh, promoters, venues, blah, 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 and get booked directly through the platform. Nice. Basically takes the whole agents out of the game, which cause I mean, speaking for myself, like as somebody who has to talk to agents all the time, fuck agents. They're yeah, fucking pieces fuck of agents. <laughs> Absolute leeches. You know what I'm saying? I used to be an agent, so I know the game inside and out. <laughs> like I was got to manage Zed's Dead and Adventure Club and all those guys. So so I've, I've played the game from every angle, you know what I'm saying? And agents are just pieces of shit. That's why I got out of the business because, you know, you're literally raping promoters on purpose and fucking over artists on purpose at the same time. And that's just not. That's not what I got into this for. You know what I'm saying? I got into this to spread good vibes, not to fuck people over. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You're just like basically so a middleman, like taxing people, basically. But yeah. Like, say you wanted to book Marshmallow, for example, or whatever. You would call his agent and he'd be like, Well, I got to go talk to his manager. Well, then why the fuck am I talking to you? Let me go <laughs> talk to your fucking manager. So, what Artist Hunt does is put the artist and the management and the talent buyers respectively, whether it's a venue, a festival, a concert, whatever, direct communication. Yeah. So, so I've been like a programmer basically uh, longer than I've been a producer, but um, yeah. So stopped really DJing producing in 2016, focused on music tech. So I've been just, you know, developing platforms and, and just sitting around. on that like it's Tuesday. Yeah. You know, just basically coming out with a new platform, like every single year, I'm like, how do we like give, how do we give the power back to artists like using like the, the modern music tech landscape basically. So uh, that's kind of what I've been focused on for the last four or five years. So. And you're killing it. Yeah. That's definitely one of the toughest questions I think in the arts, especially in so far as, as intangible art forms like music. Cause you know, if it's a, a physical thing, like a painting, you either have it or you don't. With yep. music, it's just not something that you can touch and hold in your hand. So yeah. I think all artists are oppressed by capitalism, but musicians in particular, you know, Absolutely. It's, it's so easy to get your hands on on the art that they created um, without giving any due compensation. And then, like you said, in the industry, there are just vultures everywhere. Amazing. Welcome back to Intern Lips Podcast. I'm Mike, and tonight I'm here with Sterling, Ward, Jaron, and Blaine has come back to uh, hang out with us. How are you doing, Blaine? Good. How about you? Good. And we have a couple other special guests tonight. We have MJ Lee. How are you doing, MJ? Hey. How's it going? Hey. And we also have How Chris Tanner. What's going on, man? And uh, Chris and MJ are both in the music industry. They were friends of Sterling's. And uh, so we have them on tonight to talk a little bit about 
the music industry and how it relates to capitalism. And I think one of the most obvious aspects of it will be, it'll be easy to relate, I think for anyone, just the alienation of labor. And we started to talk about it even a little bit before we started tonight. But um, I think the easiest thing we can start with would probably be the middleman. I think uh, everyone has experienced being alienated from their labor, whether it's their boss in their nine to five job, or if you are a music or any kind of art producer, and inevitably there will be somebody who makes their money off of what you produce, having not produced any of it themselves. So I know the most obvious example for you guys would probably be agents. And MJ started to go off on a little bit of a tangent about them a bit ago. Um, if you want to just talk a little bit about agents, MJ, and why they're such a, uh, a negative force in the industry and what you might seek to do about it. Um, okay, well, agents... Jesus, some of them are going to hear this. This is going to be bad. Uh, well, I mean, we don't have to talk. We can talk about something else or we could like, yeah, if you guys want to. I tell them how I feel about them all the time, right to their face. I don't care. And, uh, but they're just going to be, they're going to laugh that I'm talking about it publicly. though, Because this is like behind the curtain stuff that I'm about to talk about. Yeah. Um, so agents exist basically like if you want to book an act or a band or a DJ or whatever, you have to call a booking agent at a talent agency to be able to do that. Now, back in the day, I've been doing this for 26, 27 years now. So uh, I started throwing raves in the early 90s. And then as the music grew, I grew with it. Then I got the resources and the connections to be able to do other things. So now we produce movies. Now we do, you know, we started an application together, me and Chris here. And, uh, you know, we do, we throw you know, we're planning to throw big, large rock concerts with like Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, stuff like that, which we were going to do last year. But then the pandemic hit and that put all that on hold. So, but we basically got to the point, me and my business partners here were like, you know, we could pay a guy like Marshmallow $500,000 to come play in Atlanta because that's how much he wants now. You know, you're not getting him for less than three seventy five, four hundred, five hundred on average. You know what I'm saying? He's a half million dollar act. Chain smokers are like a million dollar act. So we were like, look, man, we can spend half a million on Marshmallow, maybe get 7,000 people to show up that are going to bitch about a $50 ticket price. Or we can book an app like Aerosmith for $500,000, put them in a stadium, have 40,000 people show up and not care about a $200, $300 ticket price. So what are we doing here? You know, I love dance music. It's my whole life. But, you know, these agents have made it where it's impossible for promoters like myself to do anything, you know what I'm saying? Because what happened back in the day, as the music was underground and it was first starting, all these agents were there and you had a bond with them. They would fly in, they'd have a layover in Atlanta because we're a hub. Hey, let's get lunch while I'm in town. None of that happens anymore. It's definitely fuck you, pay me, fuck you, pay me, fuck you, pay me. And that's their whole thing. There's no loyalty anymore. There's no uh, history in the market. You know, like you used to back in the day, if you broke an act in that market, you would have first right of refusal on bringing that act back because you're the one that took a risk on that act first. You broke them in the market. So like, for example, I brought Skrillex the first three times he came to Atlanta. And he was like, I'll never play for anybody but you. You know, but I'm like, I hear you, Sonny. You know, but it's hard when my patient comes in and says, we want 47 dates in Canada, America, and Mexico, and we're going to buy them all right now. Well, I made a promise to this guy in Atlanta, either take all the dates or don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't want to hear it. So, of course, he's got to take the dates. So then the next time Sonny comes to town, I walk into the Tabernacle, and there's 4,000 people in there at a $100 ticket, and I'm like, this is all my money that I'm missing. <laughs> and that's because of agents. You know, agents are basically the middleman 
that serve no purpose but to take their 15% from the artist and to tax the promoter. And they're so used to dealing with big conglomerates like AEG or Live Nation or whatever that when some mom and pop outfit like me calls, even though I've got seniority on all these guys because I've been doing it longer than they've ever cared about dance music. You got to remember these corporate people, they didn't care about dance music before 2010. You know, I've been doing this since 94. So how do you think I feel about them? They're, they're my mortal enemies. I don't like any of those people. So yeah, basically fuck agents. Would you have Jim? I'm just going to kind of add on to what MJ was saying there. Cause I, you know, I've not had nearly the tenure that he did in the music industry, but from what I did on the performing end, um, there's like this weird catch 22 that the bigger you get and the bigger the, the concerts are that you play, they start digging into your merch money and that's your bread and butter. So like, right. you know, if you end up playing for uh, an amphitheater or something like that, especially live nation or, or the, you know, the major conglomerates that control big shows like that, they start taking, you know, 35% of your merch table and shit like that. And, you know, let's be real. We already have people in, on the industry side that are taking like your, you know, your team that are taking some of your money. But then when you go to these larger venues and they start saying, well, now we're taking 35% of your bread and butter, you know, you may have a nice tour bus, but guess what, bitch, you're eating Wendy's side salads for the rest of the tour. So it, it comes from all angles. And the more successful you get, the more people are just clamoring for the money. And, you know, I was just a backing guy, so I can't speak to the creative process necessarily, but I can only imagine trying to be creative under that sort of duress sounds awful. Yeah, it's hard for artists. And that's why we started uh, Artist Hunt, was, which is an application platform that me and Chris here started, was to, to give the artists control of their careers back. You know what I'm saying? Take the agents out of the game. Because that's just, you get you got to look at it. So say you're a successful artist and you start getting to a point where you need a manager, you need an agent, you need a PR person, you need a tour manager, you need a merch person. All those people are taking your managers 10%, your agents 15%, your merch guys taking 10%, your PR people are taking a percentage or a huge flat fee on a yearly per annum basis. You know what I'm saying? So you go out and play a show. If you're an artist and you go out and play I mean, let's just start small. $1,000, you get paid for a show. And then you have all these people. This guy's taking $15. This guy's taking or $150. This guy's taking $100. This guy's taking $200. You know, by the time you leave the show, even though you're a $1,000 act, you walk with $150. Yeah, it's almost like the system is designed to suck up every penny that you're capable of creating. <laughs> almost like Absolutely. That. <laughs> and you got to look at it from an artist standpoint, like, okay, I want to be able to put off. I mean, imagine being able to be an artist and not care about the money whatsoever. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And then you can focus on actual art. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But what's happened in the course of, and especially in our industry and in dance music, you have to be a brand before you're ever even looked at as an artist. Nobody cares about your music before you're a brand. So that's why you got to have Instagram. You got to have so now. In the 90s, if I wanted to be a DJ, all I had to do was know how to play records better than everybody else around me. Now i got to know how to do Instagram. Now i got to know how to do Facebook ads. Now I know how to make cut and edit videos and film. Content, content, content. That's all that matters. And then maybe as an aside, you can make some music every once in a while. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, I was just actually, I think MJ just nailed it on the head of, of what I was going to say. Like As an artist, from the artist perspective, 
exactly what he said is like back in the day, right? Like you just had to play good music. You had to have good technical ability. Yeah. And and now there's a lot of gatekeeping going on and it's not even really purposeful gatekeeping. It's really just like, do you have the capital behind your brand yep. to actually succeed? And if you don't have a team and or you if you don't have the bandwidth in your personal life to be a musician and a DJ and a producer and a marketer and and a web designer and a graphic designer like if you don't have those things you won't be picked up by any of these agencies that have basically just been kind of consolidated into like the big five right um same with the record labels right and so if you can't if you can't break through to that level like you just don't get picked up it's not about talent anymore it's really just about who has the most money behind them and that really degrades the entire the entire culture, I think. So, not only degrades the culture, but it degrades the integrity of the art. You know what yep. I'm saying? Because now artists who might be more exper- experimental or maybe willing or even passionate about exploring boundaries uh, in music or, or even soundscapes or sound textures or whatever, now they have to fit in this commodified version of what this is to be able to get any agent to look at them, to even get any manager to look at them, to even get any tour going. You know what I'm saying? Because if you're not putting asses in the seats, then nobody's fucking with you. I'm not fucking with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, And that sucks as a person like me who comes from like the make love, not war. We're all just people on a rock floating through space together. Let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Now I have to look at DJs and artists like a commodity. Are they going to sell? If they're not, I'm not spending my money on them. You know what I'm saying? And it sucks. I don't like being like that, but I have to be. It's the world we live in. It fucking sucks. Yeah. Yeah. On a related note, I remember reading about 10 years ago that the financialization of the movie industry is the reason that we continue to see Marvel movie after Marvel movie, while more creative and original projects just fall to the wayside because it's not about creating a movie that is going to be entertaining or even that will sell well, you need it to sell incredibly well because it's about having the investment that you made on it. And you have people betting on that success. So they're not going to be willing to take a gamble. They only want to invest their money into something that they know is going to return that investment. And they go with safe bets. So they go with Marvel movie after Marvel movie. Would you have so? I first just wanted to say MJ was spitting some bars and I want to highlight one thing he was saying because this is a point that I actually bring up a lot when I'm talking about commodification and artwork is and we were just talking, you know, a couple weeks ago with Reed Speed and we got into this too where artist because we get rent, you've got all of these bills and just, you know, expenses you have to pay in order to survive in this world and it's like to really make it as an artist, like Chris was saying, it takes everything you've got. You've got to learn every different angle. You've got to be a graphic designer. You've got to basically be your own agent until you're big enough to get an agent. And it takes everything you've got. So you have to turn your passion also into a career or else you can't actually make art for art. So when you have to turn your passion into a career, it also means you have to make your passion marketable. And you slowly start selling off pieces of your soul because you have to pay that rent. And then at some point, and I can certainly attest to my career, at some point it no longer is art and it's only a business. And that's what happened with me and Pyramid Scheme is one day I realized this isn't art. I'm, I'm no longer an artist. I'm a businessman and this isn't what I want to do. Like I'm cool doing art, but I'm no longer doing art. And, you know, 
I remember the first time when when I moved back from Hawaii and I had just started Pyramid Scheme, you know, me and MJ go way back. He'd been throwing Kingdom Raves all the time, other big shows, and he'd put me on little, you know, side things just as homey love. Like, even when it's just my friends showing up, but I wasn't selling no tickets. But MJ was like, yo, you're my dog. Let me put you on this uh, little stage, you know, get you out there. Maybe you can build your brand. Well, yeah, give you an opportunity. Yeah, and once I actually turned Pyramid Scheme into something that would actually you know bring people in the doors i remember the day i moved back mj called me and he's like hey we're putting you on main stage on this kingdom i need you out here i need you on main stage and it was so just powerful but i had to do the work first mj couldn't just put me on that main stage when i was fucking no one and the reason i bring this up is because and i don't want to dive too much into all this beef that just happened the other day but there was a very certain someone complaining about not being put in certain places and i'm like homie i i feel it we've all felt that but you've got to work too and that's the sad part is the art doesn't just do it yeah i mean that you know to touch on that that guy so i did i put him on main stage the open main stage of a seven thousand person show yeah you know what i'm saying and this is when he first started his new project nobody knew who the fuck he was nobody was giving him any kudos but because i thought he was a nice guy i'm like i'm gonna give you an opportunity what you do with opportunities is all up to you. You know what I'm saying? And like I said, I mean, I, I wish we lived in a more utopian world where, where I was able to do that with everybody, but I'm not. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like at the end of the day, I got to eat. I got to survive. I got to pay rent. So how can I just be out here being like, hey, I'm just going to throw free shows or I'm just going to put people that nobody knows about who I just happen to like who aren't going to put any asses in the seats and spend twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 on a party. You know what I'm saying? I can't. I just can't. I have to buy the things that are marketable so people will come to my show. Yeah. You know, and that puts me in a position where, you know, I might want to book somebody that I'm into that's more experiment. Like these guys, Blue Sky, Black Death. I can't get a They're my favorite producers on the planet. Like without them, they're, they're from Seattle. Odessa's from Seattle. Without these guys, I believe in my heart, there would be no Odessa. There would be no Rufus Dussault. There would be none of these fucking dudes that were doing the shit that these guys were doing in the fucking early 2000s. Like almost 20 years ago, these guys were making Odessa sounding music. And they broke up because they couldn't fucking get any traction. And I'm like, man, if I could book an app like that all the fucking time, or if I could book... Uh, Two Fingers, which is a Montobin's like bass music app. You know what I'm saying? I don't understand how that guy's not as big as Bass Nectar. Well, Bass Nectar before he was fucking little girls. But fucking... Uh, oh, my. I uh, know. <laughs> I've been outside of that. I didn't even Ooh. know that was a thing. I was... He's not singing I was before yeah. before Pyramid Scheme broke up, I had just signed to Madison House, which is Bass Nectar's agency. And so right. I, I, I guess I'm glad I'm not still on that agency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes. they said he got canceled for sure. Oh, wow. Um, he had, like, audio recordings of him, like, trying to... This girl, like, confronted him. Like, I was 15 years old, dog, and he was like, if you think I belong in jail getting fucked in the ass so you can feel better about something that happened when you were 15, and, and she posted that audio clip on Instagram. What? And, like, we all heard it, like, I don't know, dog. Gaslighter. Like, Pro gaslighter. Yeah, yeah, I used to fuck with you, but I can't defend that. Bye. Shit. Damn. Wow. Yeah, dog. I mean, anybody that knows me for a second is like, I don't put up with predators or, you know, none of that. 
the music industry is already fucked up enough with so many sharks swimming in it already. Mm-hmm. Like if we can't protect the women in it, then what, who the fuck are we? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I yeah. just think that makes me a piece of shit. I did want to um, ask Blaine real quick before we get too off the topic of the curse of marketability when making a creative product. I wanted to ask you how that relates to you and your industry, because I feel like you probably have some good input on that. So my industry is a very interesting one. It is still one foot in fringe and very much under the radar and one foot completely in capitalism, especially in America, where we are in a capitalist society tattooing has been fringe in a lot of places, which is strange because it comes from such sacred roots, but here it doesn't really have such a background. Um, For example, in New York, tattooing was illegal, I want to say well into the 90s. I think it was 95. Yeah, like it was outlawed for a long time and we're still dealing with a lot of gatekeeping, not necessarily in the same sense, we're dealing more so with the capitalist within rather than the capitalist without in the society, like in, in the industry. So it's kind of like that mental mindset of being a capitalist. And that's pretty pervasive in my industry and things like that. The hustle of a tattoo artist, I would say most modern day tattoo artists here in the U.S., very capitalist mindset. Most people... You either want to be a walk-in artist where you overcharge a lot of tattoos that walk in, you make bank doing it, or you're booked out two years in advance. Either way, you're kind of selling your soul. And yeah, kind of like what we were talking about a little while ago. I think a lot of tattoo artists do have the soul of an artist. Some, it's just a job, which is fine either way. But a lot of times you find yourself making things and trying to sell it. You want to make money off of it. You're not really making it for the sake of making artwork or for the yeah. sake of feeding your soul. Yeah. I, for one, am a huge practitioner of what a lot of people call tattooing and ritual. Um, it happens a lot with fellow tattoo artists. A lot of people try to pay for tattoos and it's a form of respect, which I respect, but it's kind of strange to me. Like if I'm tattooing in a shop, if someone wants to get tattooed by me, I'm just going to tattoo you. I'm not going to charge you money. It's kind of weird. But yeah, so that's kind of what we're dealing with in my industry. And tattoo artists, some are dumb as all get out. And they can't see <laughs> capitalism is trying to like stick its fingers in our fucking pie. And then a lot of us do realize when capitalism, at least as like, not the capitalist within, but the capitalist without is trying to get in. For example, in New York, a couple of years ago, an ink company was trying to lobby local government to outlaw ink bottles and they wanted individual ink use packets and we all knew what was going on they were the only company making these individual use ink packets they wanted all the money (laughs) so we all said fuck you we just won't buy your ink if that's how you want to play this and fuck you we'll bankrupt your company it's like an unofficial union right yeah it's an unofficial union we don't really unionize all too well though because i think there's a lot of infighting on a lot of other stuff but yeah, that's kind of what we're experiencing within our industry within the last couple of years. So it's a different kind of industry. We have a tangible product. We have a tangibility to what we do. And there's no use for a middleman, not really. I mean, counter people, but that's not really a middleman. So They're not taking 15% from you, are they, counter people? Not usually, no. We usually pay right. them salary or like a flat rate. Um, right. 
that's usually how it goes. When you say counter people, what's that mean? Like a front desk person. So they answer okay. phone calls. Sometimes okay. they clean up your station or set you up. Um, they deal with the general public, emails, all sorts of things like that. More so like a okay. personal assistant. Okay. Um, some shops have them, some don't. Mine does not, so I don't have one. I deal with literally every leg of the business. I do wow. the correspondence. I do social media. I do the product. I do photo, video, you name it. I do it. Wow. What would you have, Jaren? So this is partially to get you to go on a rant because I think it's going to work. Why would you do that? But it ties the music industry to tattooing and and other art forms as well is when you're learning how to become an artist, um, specifically like getting your leg into whatever industry you choose. um, More often than not, you have to do an internship or or shadow somebody. And in these cases, at best, you're not being paid. At worst, you're paying to do it. So this creates a a classist glass ceiling, as MJ put it, uh, that, you know, if if you don't come from a middle class family or above and you don't have that social safety net, you do need to work those eight or 10 hour shifts on minimum wage, which should be literally three times what it is right now. You literally don't have time to spend the allotted amount of time that you need with the masters and the and the influencers and the people in the industry to actually get you in there. Like I did, um, I won't name with who, but, you know, I did an unpaid internship before getting into the music industry and I could do it because my family was stable and they helped me pay my bills at the time. That's the reason I could do it. And I think that there's a million other people given that same background that I had that could have done awesome things in the music industry too, but that wasn't their path. And I know you have some thoughts on that as well for tattooing. Yeah, I fucking paid for my apprenticeship. I paid $6,000, which I did not have, but I came up with it um, to go get sexually abused at a tattoo shop. So yeah, fuck fuck that. Fucking fuck that shit. If you're a tattooer and you're listening right now, you should be paying your fucking apprentices. Do not exploit their labor. You should be fucking paying them. And also maybe consider taking on a woman, someone who is queer, someone who is a person of fucking color, maybe try not gatekeeping for white cis males because that's what the industry is dominated by. It makes it impossible. You know, if you want to get in, you have to come up with six grand, which who can come up with six grand? And that's pretty standard. Some assholes even charge 10 grand. There's a particular one in Georgia that I can think of that's not worth 10 grand. And he doesn't teach you anything. So it's bullshit. It's fucking bullshit. And it's a hard job. You're a personal assistant. You wipe their asses and put up with hazing. I saw an apprentice get set on fire straight up. It's not it's not normal. This is not normal. Okay, we need that background there. I used to have people hit me up, especially back in the kingdom days, like all the time. It still happens from time to time. Uh, now, but like people hit me up for, for college internships or, you know, like I want to do an internship to get college credit or I want to do an internship because I want to do what you do for a living. And I'm like, bro, like, I can't, I would feel fucking weird having somebody working for me and not paying them. I just couldn't, I don't know how they, exactly. I don't know how people do that. I don't know how you look in the mirror. Well, I think can we, so can we talk about the person on fire real quick? <laughs> <laughs> I need uh, to know about that. 
Well, it was an apprentice that was working with me at the time. Um, white, cis, male. I'm not going to give out any names or anything like that. But yeah, he was getting hazed really hard because that's just, it's part of it. If you're a girl, it's likely going to be sexual abuse. If you're a guy, it's going to be violent. Yeah. They just, he was drawing, he was concentrating really hard. And yeah, one of the artists decided to pour alcohol under his chair and light it on fire. And it, it, it was burning for a minute. And I was like, dude, you're on fire. Like, fuck. And in another shop, in another shop, granted, this apprentice got paid, but he still had to deal with a shit ton of hazing. He got stabbed with a pair of scissors. This, like, what? What, what work environment is this okay? It's fucking dumb. Jesus Christ. Seriously. Yeah. Like, and it does nothing to help you with the craft. Nothing. Wait, so they're paying to get stabbed and lit on fire? Technically, <laughs> the one who got stabbed was getting paid. The one who got lit on fire was not getting paid. Yep. If that clarifies anything. I can't tell you which one really is I can't either. All I know is if you stab me or set me on fire, it's going to be a bad day for you. That's all. I don't care what reason you have. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody who's in any creative industry will understand how common it is to have not only work demanded of you for quote exposure where people just want you to do free stuff because they say oh, it'll be a good opportunity people will see your work and that will lead to better opportunities later on and i mean there's no avoiding it. i mean that's really is something that you do have to do but there's yeah. also no shortage of people who are set to take advantage of that and yeah, just they do want to get your labor for free yeah sorry go ahead my bad well i was just gonna say even worse is the pay to play that's a whole nother level of just despicable behavior we don't put up with play to play in Atlanta at all. Like even the rock like uh, venues and stuff. We don't. We're just not having that down here. There's some towns that still do it, but like we don't put up with that here. And even as far as like um like I've people that I book them for exposure before because they were nobodies, and I've got a per, I've got a show that ten thousand people are coming to already. You know what I'm saying? So that's you know I kind of walk the line with like. And even then, I try and throw them 50, 100 bucks or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, at least go get something to eat for coming out. But, like, a lot of times these guys will hit you up nonstop. Like, please just put me on. I'll do anything. Please just put me on. And, you know, after a while, you're like, all right, I'll give you a shot, kid. I'll listen to your stuff. I like it. You know, blah, blah, blah. Here you go. But I'm not paying you because you're not worth anything yet. You know what I'm saying? It's just so there's a fine line between wanting to pay people what they're worth and giving an upstart artist value but at the same time you know you have to we just live in a capitalist society i mean when you run a business you have to run it like a business period you have to admit mj like there is some pay to play still going on in atlanta with the underground hip-hop community like that is yeah i've seen that yeah i pay 50 100 dollars to just to just get a slot like yeah. that is absurd. Yeah, guys on stage for five seconds, like, and then it's like a thirty second. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's been phased out a lot here, but I, I still hear that like some new promoter will come up and do it, and they get ran out of town pretty quickly. It doesn't happen very often in Atlanta. Yeah, I actually uh, was involved in this hip hop show. It was after we had dropped that collab with the Ying Yang Twins, and this random like hip hop booking company like randomly booked us for thirty five hundred dollars, which we were never even in our best days worth thirty five hundred dollars. And we just get this email like, "Yo, you think you can work uh, with this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I think we'll manage." And so <laughs> we, we we show up, get thirty five hundred dollars for an hour worth of 
DJing. Lord knows what they paid the Ying Yang twins, but every other artist on the lineup paid anywhere from a hundred to five hundred dollars for literally, like MJ said, to play two or three songs tops. And they just cycled through them. Every one of them paid. And how many people were in the crowd? Um, that one, a couple hundred. It wasn't too, I mean, they like, I, I would say they lost money, but I guess they made all the other artists pay us, which looking yeah. back makes it even more fucked up. <laughs> this is my pyramid scheme. <laughs> hey, that was the name hey. of my group. <laughs> What's up, Jeremy? All right, first off, Mike, if you, if you have like an outline for this episode, I don't want to derail this completely. And Sterling, at some point, I need to tell you about the show that I played with the Yin Yang Twins. At oh, some my point. God. <laughs> at a feminist magazine. Yeah. But anyway. What? Wow. <laughs> Whole other story. Great. <sighs> anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so I was like thinking about this today because Cosper, um, of course, obviously he's not here. And I really wish he was because this is like a perfect subject for him. But he recommended... Uh, something by Walter Benjamin for me to read. And I checked it out and it got me thinking about a lot of different stuff. So this is one of the things that it kind of stirred up for me. It's like, okay, in traditional economics, right? We have supply being enacted to meet demand, right? There's a demand for something. So somebody starts supplying the amount to meet that demand. Um, But under this hyper-capitalist like superstructure that we have, it's become the inverse. We have demand being manufactured to meet supply. Yeah. We overproduce so much shit that we have to have entire industries that manufacture demand. And how this relates to the arts for me is it occurred to me that artists are predominantly the people that get recruited into these industries of just advertisements, celebrity endorsements, even down to airbrushing people on a fucking magazine. I mean, do you think a person who has a passion for graphic design wants to spend their entire nine to five career airbrushing people's fucking acne? Like, you know, we, we have all of these creative people who are just siphoned and bludgeoned into creating artificial demand for things that we don't need. We have perfume on the shelves. Do we really need an alternate version with Britney fucking Spears on it? Although that's a bad example. Yes. Because Britney exactly. Um, but, you know, it, it just got me thinking like artists are directly in the firing line of this industry that is hands down bullshit wasteful capitalist just just a mess I do want to make the point I know we may talk about this a little more later we should really get it across that you know it's not enough to condemn individual people for all these dastardly actions that they're doing like we have spent some time already. We'll probably spend a bit more time talking about all the evil people involved from the top to the bottom in the music industry and all the shitty things that they do to artists and to each other. And I know for one, like, and I've done this at every job I've worked at where I just will hate a particular manager who's a dick or any person who's in a position of power and uses that to exploit you in some way. But at a certain point, you have to stop, especially after seeing so many of these people do these things and see that in so many different situations in the different places. You have to look at the larger system that puts these people into that position. And some will be worse than others. Some will really internalize these systemic pressures. You know, everyone, like, like you guys are saying, we all live in the, under this system. We're all eating from the trash can. Everybody's got to eat. But some people do internalize it more than others and will behave a lot more uh, just shittily than other people will. And whereas, you know, other people will go out of their way to take care of the people that are actually producing goods. They will do, go out of their way to pay their interns or to uh, make sure that the artists are getting paid fairly or make sure that people are getting bookings that they deserve. But at the end of the day, 
there really is only so much you can do because you have to make a profit, you know, and you have other people that you have to pay. And where I think also it gets really sickening is when you see people who internalize that this is going back to the marketability mm -hmm. aspect of it. People who internalize, especially with artists, the desire to be marketable to the point where they will try to be like these images that you're seeing in a Photoshopped magazine or something. And you have these people who are walking around dressed like a caricature sometimes. Like they look like they're not a real person even, but it's because they are an artist and they know that they have to be outlandish. Like, I don't know. I always think of Lady Gaga in a meat dress and just like, what is going on? Like, what did you have to do to stand out that you're going to make waves and you're going to be the next viral sensation? Like people do such ridiculous shit. She was making a political statement with that though, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure there was yeah. definitely some kind of like a vegan message. Maybe it was a pita thing. I don't really know anything about the pita thing. Yeah, but yeah, like you have that same thing in the the music industry, right? Like I think Daft Punk was probably the first, but then you have Marshmello coming out with the helmets, and you have ten, fifteen, twenty other artists mm -hmm. coming out with helmets, and you have even in hip hop, like you have people dressing just like more and more like outlandishly just to stick out and like they feel like their persona has to be just more and more out there just to stick out. And like, mm -hmm. is that really what it's about? Is it about the music anymore? Or is it about the persona? I mean, look at Takashi 6 9 That guy is horrible. He's terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible. He is so bad. I mean, yeah. literally all he does is scream into a microphone <laughs> and, uh, and just repeat the same word over and over. You know, I mean, I guess Waka made a career out of doing that, but Waka can rhyme at least. Yeah. But Waka wasn't that. doing anything crazy, right? Like he was still just right. like, he was dressed pretty normally, but Takashi's right. like rainbow colored and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm not it's trying to dig on like hip hop artists. I like, into a bowl of fruity pebbles. But like, I'm, I'm really not trying to dig on hip hop because like I get, there's a whole culture around that and that's fine. And I'm cool with that. But like edm especially like with the helmets and stuff like that that shit bothers me man honestly like the edm artists have gone way over the top like there's no reason why you should be standing on the like on top of your cdjs like literally like no dig at skrillex but like he like literally had his feet on the track wheel of the cdjs like yeah, that doesn't yeah. that that just destroys gear like that's yeah. gear that like so many guys would kill to have in their home studio and you're standing on top of them and that and that's fine like that's cool but like do you really need to stand on top of it and like do the finger guns and all that shit like come on man like just play music that's all you're here to do like i don't know i don't know about, i mean this as a guitarist you know what I'm saying? Nobody was, I mean, that was part of their show. It was awesome. I get it, but like, is it about the show or is it about the music? Like, that's. King Simmons smashes bass into the stage and we're like, fuck, I could have used that bass. Get the fuck out of here. I don't know. Man. Like, <laughs> to me, it's just like, yo, like, you're a DJ. Like, why are you disrespecting the gear? But in, in another way, it's just like, you know, it seems like it's just going more and more over the top. And at what point does it get like, to the point where, where it's like GG, who's that guy? GG Allen. GG Allen. Like, at, what, at what point do you like pouring your blood over your head ass. and like killing animals on stage? Like, at what point does it get to that? And we're just like, wait, 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 hold up. Like, this is gone. I had a party with GG Allen at the Claremont Lounge once. Legendary. It was, uh, no, he didn't. We had a long talk about philosophy. He's an awesome guy. He was an awesome guy. <laughs> But, I mean, you know, that's all just stage craft. You know what I'm saying? That's, you know, that wasn't who he was as a person. That was an act, you know? 
Yeah, he he did yeah. whoop the audience's ass on occasion, and that may have been going too far. <laughs> okay, okay, maybe maybe this is a better example. Okay, Steve Aoki throwing cake into the crowd. At what point? Yeah. At what point wow. do we get like? Do we say like, nah, that's like that's not what this is about? Like, I don't know. That goes back to me talking about being a brand before the artist, and what yeah. I want to also touch on is what's happened with the commodification and mainstreaming of, of the music that I love and care about more than any is dance music. So, but now it doesn't matter from a promoter standpoint, you're just booking names because they're all playing the same 20 tunes. And like back in the day, if you booked Tiesto, he was playing all his own tracks and they all like, that was a vibe that you were getting for that night. Oh, it's going to yeah. be tracked oh, all yeah. night. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you book Tiesto, he's playing the same 20 tracks as Carnage or Avicii or, you know, anybody else out here. You know what I'm saying? Any of the big names are all playing the same 20, 30 tunes. So it doesn't matter who you book. It's just names on a flyer at this point. And that's what's most depressing about dance music right now. And again, that's from the commodification of branding. Like your brand means more than the actual music that you're producing or playing. You know what I'm saying? It's Tiesto. I'm going to go see him. And then it never dawns on these kids that he's going to play the same tracks as I could get Sterling to come play, you know? Well, I did try to play tracks other people didn't play. <laughs> Give me a little credit. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying. No, no, I, 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 get I get what you're you saying. I get what you're saying. Play the same tracks that Tiesto would come play. You know what I'm saying? You should have been charging 20 grand. That's sure, where I fucked on. up, you know. I, I got that taste. Grand, of, grand. I got that taste of thirty five hundred, and I should have worked up. What did you yeah, have? I was to- just feeding from then on. He was <laughs> like, "Oh, I got thirty five hundred offer. I'm not taking nothing less than that ever again." <laughs> Would you have, Jaron? I, I, I called you for some book, and you told me something ridiculous price, and I was like, "Dog, I can't do that." <laughs> <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta pay. I gotta pay rent too, dog. <laughs> That'll be 15000 I'm telling you, like, you have lost your mind, Sterling. Bro, that's been for like six months. What are you talking about, Sterling? Oh, shit. I just, I, well, you're talking about commodifying art, and so I'm going to, you have to bear with me on this. So I'm going to make like two different points with it, and I'll keep them short. But like, okay, punk rock and hip hop automatically come to mind because these are things that had nothing to do with like commodity fetishization at the beginning. It was like cultural music. It was about like, fuck the man. It was about smaller yeah, communities. And then, you know, then hot topic came along and we saw what happened to hip hop and rap and they're not completely bastardized, but they're definitely not what they initially were. They got turned into a commodity and that's what capitalism does. Now let me roll with that point about how counterculture becomes manufactured consent, because that's what that was. Look at someone like Ellen DeGeneres, okay? So she was gay before it was cool, right? She managed to, like, get into a celebrity role even prior to, like, LGBTQ plus discussion on the national main stage. She was already a celebrity before that. And then she gets George W. fucking Bush on her liberal show... And says like, oh, we just have a difference of opinions, but we're actually really good friends. And then all of a sudden the ratchet moves to the right and all the liberals are like, hey, man, you know, at least George Bush wasn't Trump. And I'm just sitting there like, fuck, what do you do with this? And, you know, because Ellen is an artist. She's a performance artist. She's a comedian. And that was capitalism using art to move the entire fucking paradigm to the right and, and drag 
uh, performative liberals with it because now, yeah, they'll foam at the mouth over Trump and completely forgot about like how awful George Iraqis. W. Bush is. <laughs> anyway, million, rant over. A million Iraqis roll over in their grave. Seriously. Like, dude, it's not cute that he draws pictures of himself no. in the bubble bath. He should be doing that in prison. Yeah. He can still have paints there, but like, come There's on. No bubble bath. No, no bubble, bubble bath. No, we can all agree he was he was a pawn though. Like he's obviously a dumb yeah, shit. Yeah, when Cheney was president. Yeah, I mean Cheney should Cheney, be in prison. Like, George Bush Cheney, should be painting pictures of Cheney. Cheney and, and, and HW. Like honestly, like I mean, mm-hmm. the dude is dumb as shit. Like if if you read his his autobiography or whatever the fuck it was, like you can obviously tell like he is trying to like make his daddy proud his entire mm-hmm. life and was doing everything to to make that happen and. And that's the sad part is that he got conned into like killing people and like innocent people. And all it was, was just trying to make his dad proud. Like he's the epitome of a puppet. And that's the sad part is that he, I think he actually was a good guy. And I know that's like a super unpopular opinion. I'm sorry. You're you're breaking up. I'm losing your connection. (laughs) I think, I think if he, if he wasn't under the influence of his dad and the people around him, he wouldn't be the person he is today. That's all I'm saying. Like, I really think he's just spoiled bourgeois son of a bitch. Like best case scenario, but he oil tyrant. All I'm saying is is like Ellen DeGeneres literally got a man that kept her from getting married. Yo. on the show and was like I love you no. okay, we, we all have no like it's come out like girl it, boss it, it, it's definitely come out that Ellen is like a total fucking fraud and we all know yeah. that like all the stuff that's come out from the people who have served on her show being like yeah she's a fucking tyrant she yeah. like treats us like shit like we all know she's a fucking fraud by now so like Capitalism. all of that like we can chalk all that up to just like Ellen being a fucking a true she Ellen. doesn't even Ellen. fuck girls. Probably not. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, <dude. laughs> I'm not going to speculate. So I would say that I'm not, I mean, I'm not in the man's head or anything, so I can't like tell you what his psychology was. But like, to me, especially in my business, I have a thing where like, I can tolerate a fuck up all day before I can tolerate a malicious person. Yeah. So to me, it really comes down to malice, like the malice in somebody's heart. Like if you're a predator out here, I'm coming to fucking do war with you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But if you're a fuck up, then I'm going to help you try and fix your fuck up. Like I'll mop up fuck ups all day, but I'm not mop- mopping up malice once. You know what I'm saying? So I thought you were saying malice. I was like, yeah, malice. <laughs> yeah. No, malice, like malice in your heart. Like, yeah, you know, like, you. fucking, like I'm trying to fuck people over and hurt them. Yeah. That's what I don't put up with. I don't know if George Bush W was that. I mean, I think his dad was for sure when he was in the CIA. And, you know, the, I mean, don't get me started on the Noriega shit that fucking HW was involved with, with importing cocaine into our country. You know, fuck it. Anyway, so uh, I don't know if W had malice. That's what I was saying. Jaren, what were you going to say? I was, I was just going to say, I just want to see the reaction on Mike's face if I could get Blaine to do like a chibi version of Stalin and Mal like doing a fusion thing. Or like holding hands. I'm like, <laughs> 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 
Like I would I would let her tattoo that on me, but then I'd never get another job. <laughs> I'd probably get canceled. So yeah. we can't do it. Sorry, Sterling. <laughs> we can do marks. We, we, can, we can do marks. <laughs> Marks. Marks. Yeah, Marks and, and Kropotkin. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's ch- and they turn into Chomsky. <laughs> oh fuck! <laughs> All this talk about Ellen is just making me wonder. Like, what's the sellout course of for the Turn Leftist podcast? Like, where do we? What are we going to do so that we end up like rehabilitating we... Marjorie Taylor Green in a couple decades or something? Like, oh, I thought you were asking how do we sell out? And I was like, yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Like, what are we going to do so we end up like having Mark Thatcher on here and saying he's actually a good guy? Like, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to email Tom Friedman tomorrow. Yeah, right. Hell yeah. <laughs> Um, I guess uh, unless we really have more to dive on this, I feel like we, we've beat that horse pretty well. Um, I do have this uh, preparation on the art industry as far as like, you know, actual the, the big artists that everybody knows by name um, in the painting industry that I prepared. Um, you guys want to dive into that real quick? And I'll just kind of read what oh, I've got. Yeah. And, you know, oh, yeah. any, anyone who wants to critique as I go, just throw up your hand and I'll give you the floor. So what I've done here is because I wanted to kind of talk about how not only has art become a commodification, but it's become a way to commit tax evasion legally. So the first thing I want to do is go over a, just a couple quick definitions. Uh, the first definition is called is alternative investment. An alternative investment is a financial asset that does not fall into one of the conventional investment categories. Uh, conventional categories include stocks, bonds, and cash. Those are the three normal ones. Uh, alternative investments include private equity or venture capital, hedge funds, managed futures, art, antiques, uh, commodities, derivative contracts, and sometimes even real estate. Next definition, hedge fund, because that's a really important one because hedge funds and art are really tied together. So hedge fund is a limited partnership of investors that use high risk methods such as investing with borrowed money in hopes of realizing large capital gains. And the reason I wanted to go over the hedge fund is to explain how close in proximity that definition is with Ponzi scheme, which is an investment fraud that pays existing investors with funds collected from new investors. Ponzi schemes organized uh, often to promise to invest money and generate high returns with little uh, to no risk. But in many Ponzi schemes, the fraudsters do not invest the money. Instead, they use it to pay those who have invested earlier. You know, Bernie Madoff is a good example of this. Basically, he pretended that he had this big book and he wouldn't, you know, let people know what he's investing in. But he's investing in a lot and he kept, you know, getting tens and 20 million until he finally got up to, I think, nearly a hundred billion before they finally busted him. And he was just taking the new money and paying the old investors. He's like, yeah, we made a 50% return. And they're like, that's not even possible. What the fuck? But then everyone else wanted to invest in him. And it just turned into this huge funnel until there was no longer <laughs> enough money to keep uh, running it, which is real similar to how a lot of hedge funds that get away with it legally kind of operate because they will uh, run with borrowed money, which is not a whole lot different than money that just has not been collected yet. That's kind of the big difference is a hedge fund can run with borrowed money and a Ponzi scheme is money that hasn't been collected. The only true difference between those two is one of them is on paper and the other is just not disclosed. 
Uh, many people who invest in art invest in hopes that the art will appreciate in value over the course of many years. Uh, this is an alternative equity investment. So that's your your normal run of the mill. If I want to go and buy a painting, I am hoping that over the course of several years of me owning that painting, it's going to grow in value. And then I you know, sell it and try to make a profit. That's how most people think the art industry works. But once you break into what they call the uh, the blue chip artist, the game changes. So most traditional banks will actually not lend against artwork as collateral, but there are tons of private investors who will. So if you do have a very expensive piece of artwork, you know, say you've dropped $10 million into one piece that you're kind of keeping put aside, maybe Wells Fargo is not going to let you loan, uh, isn't going to lend against it, but I guarantee you there's a market and there are people who will. So investable artists or are what they call blue chip artists. This are the top 50 to 100, you know, most valued artists, uh, Warhol, Picasso, Da Vinci, all the names that we know. Those are like the goal. And you'll notice most of those names are dead. And I'm going to come back to why in a bit. But every year, the rich use art to avoid paying billions in taxes. Nearly 100 billion a year worth of art is sold globally. When a rich person buys a piece of art, they typically pay the cost of the art plus the sales tax of the state that that art was purchased in, if it was purchased in the U.S. Uh, after a year, that piece of art can be donated to a museum, and the owner donating the piece collects a quote-unquote charitable donation tax deduction of the artwork at a fair market value, which will likely be determined by the museum or by an appraiser that in most cases the museum uh, set up. The museum, of course, pays you nothing for the charitable donation and the value to you is the tax deduction of the newly appraised value that either the museum or their appraiser has set. Uh, the tax deduction may also be spread out over five years in up to five different portions totaling the appraised value if you cannot claim the full deduction the year it's sold. And what that means is, unlike most tax deductions, you know, if I take some clothes down to Goodwill and, you know, I can then deduct a couple hundred dollars off my taxes, uh, I have to do it that year. But since art is so high in value, you can only technically deduct up to a third of your actual income that year. If I only make $10 million a year and I just sold a piece of art for $10 million, I actually can deduct a fifth of it this year, a fifth of it next year, and so on up to a five-year period. Do you have some, MJ? Yeah, I was just going to say, and if that art is worth $50 million at the end of five years, you're getting that tax credit on the $50 million now instead of the original $10 million. That's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that, but that's probably not wrong. Um, so they'll, and, they'll let you uh, like amortize the value of it over a, a longer period of time. Interesting. Interesting. And if a person privately sells a piece of art, they will have to pay sales tax and any fees to an auctioneer or an agent that arranged the sale. However, uh, well, not really. Okay. Not, right. Fuck agents. Uh, if if <laughs> art is, And I want to I talk about auctions because this is where it gets real interesting. And this might even be something we can tie back to NFTs later. But if art yes. is sold, if art is sold at an auction, it is not uncommon that the auction or even others sitting in the crowd may arrange 
just drive up the cost of that artwork. I think we, of we've course. right that that's not an unnatural thing we've heard about because knowing we do, it, we do it with artists all the time. Like if I know somebody wants to book somebody that I wanted to book, then or uh, or if I don't really care about booking them, then we'll get into bidding wars over the artist just to drive the other guy's price up exactly. higher than what they wanted to pay. We do it all the time. Exactly. Exactly. And. and and in the art industry, this inflated value is also going to increase the future valuation of that art. So if someone wants to simply raise the value of a piece of artwork they had, they could just sell it to someone they know through one of these auctions to keep raising it up because what that sells for then becomes public information and that will likely raise the next appraisal on that piece of art. And then that next person who is in cahoots with the original seller could work out a deal that when they make a charitable donation for this newly appraised amount that they're both you know getting to gain from that and when a piece of art is valued at a high enough number it now becomes a very uh, unique opportunity to invest money that the owner will not have to pay taxes on over the next several years so long as he holds the art in the right way there are special ways to keep art outside of museums that allows you to never fucking pay taxes on the shit most of the you know most valuable art on the planet is not actually even in museums or in private homes but it's typically stored in specialized warehouses overseas in you know several specific countries to avoid paying taxes while you're also able to insure that art so if the building did catch fire you're not going to lose anything because you're going to get the appraised value if it burns so it's win-win for you because you're not paying taxes all the way through and almost all forms of taxes sales tax and especially and most importantly inheritance tax can be avoided when sales trades or transfers take place within these specialized warehouses so we talked about sometimes you sell artwork but you still got to pay a sales tax Here's ways to get around it because Geneva doesn't make you pay that sales tax. And even more importantly, if you want to pass on $20 million to your children when you die, that Uncle Sam never gets to touch, that you know even the death tax doesn't get to reach, this is how you do it. You put a $20 million piece of art in Geneva, you die, and you let that go uh, straight to your kids. Zero taxes. And a big issue with this kind of system of overinflating the value of art by astronomical amounts and donating to museums for these huge tax breaks is that museums are forced to curate their showcases around the pieces of art that are being used for tax loopholes. Instead of being able to showcase the true artistic value that they'd love to showcase art that is just artistically, you know, uh, important. Um, and so much important art of our generation and generations before never see museum showcases for these reasons because they haven't figured out a way to use it as tax loopholes and i'm sure mj can even speak on that with artists that he would love to book but because the industry has not found a way to commodify these artists there's no way he can economically make sense of it yeah i mean that's what that goes back to what i was saying earlier is the same thing is like i have to regardless of whether I like the act personally or whatever, go pay it, buy a ticket and go see them personally. I have to book them because that's the guy or girl who puts asses in the seats. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So I would rather be booking, like I'm going to throw a festival in 2022, yep. you know, my own festival. 
I don't have to ask anybody for anything. I don't have to argue with whether, you know, I'm just going to do it because I want to do it and I'm going to be rich and I can do it. But it's going to be like the most curated lineup that's North America's seen in a while because I'm going to do it and not care if it makes money, which is a fucking freedom that a lot of people don't have. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm going to do it like, you know, for my birthday, like I usually do. I throw a big party for my birthday every year. Yeah. Well, you should. I haven't done it for the last four years, but this festival is going to be, people are going to be like, what the fuck, dude? Because it's going to be all dope shit, period. No filler. Yeah. Which is really what all art should be. You should be making art, not because you're trying to make a profit off of it. Right. I mean, you know, I was talking about, I was talking about with you, like I just finished before we started this, I just finished watching the Snyder Cut of Justice League, right? Yeah. So that whole debacle was over some corporate suits trying to tell an artist what the fuck they had to do with their art instead of just letting him be an artist. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, if you're not going to let me do my vision, I'm walking. So then they got Josh Whedon to come in, who I usually love. I love Josh Whedon. You know what I'm saying? I paid $50 for an autograph from him. And I don't care about autographs at all. You know what I'm saying? I know a bunch of famous people. Yeah. So I don't care about that. But I bought an autograph of Josh Whedon because I'm just a geek and I love Josh Whedon. But he fucked that fucking movie up, dog. Yep. And fucking... Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I just finished watching the Snyder Cup before we started this and that and I made a Facebook post about it. Like this is if you want to see what an artistic vision looks like without the suits getting involved, go watch that movie. Because yeah. it's fucking awesome. Hell yeah. But I'm a geek like that. I'm really yeah, yeah, superheroes yeah. yeah, we were talking about that and how Snyder, like straight up on this new cut, did it pro bono just because this is the passion. Right. He had a passion for it. He wanted to do the money the do the movie the right way. What did you have, Chris? Right. Yeah. Whenever we get to the NFTs, there's there's a good point around what we're talking about right now when we talk about not only commodification of art, but also like the gatekeeping around art. Like I don't know if we're ready for that conversation yet, but but when we get yeah. to it, like if you put a piece of art up for sale and someone buys it for a million dollars, who does that exclude? That excludes everyone that built you up around your fan base, right? Because these people don't have a million dollars. Yeah. But now the rights to this this piece of art now belong to that person and they can hold on to it for as long as they want. You know, they don't have to do anything with it. They can resell it if they want, but they don't have to. They could literally take that piece of art, lock it down. I mean, it's the same thing with Martin Shkreli, like the Wu-Tang album, right? Like he he wanted it for himself and and that was it. And there's people out there like that. And so what who does that exclude when we talk about NFTs? And so uh, when we get into that, we can talk about that more. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. And on that topic, uh, my my girlfriend is really into Grimes, and she's been really upset because these last times she's done right, these last times she's done merch drops. No, trust me, fucking anyone in proximity to Elon gets the guillotine first, in my opinion. Right, but I was gonna say gross, but I was trying to be respectful. No, to your no, it's, it's cool. But she, uh, she, the last he's made me some money on Dogecoin in the last couple months. That's all I can say about him. 
But the, these last couple merch drops that she's done, instead of doing normal merch drops where she does like, you know, several hundred t-shirts and sells them for normal t-shirt costs, she's decided to just make t-shirts herself with her own little setup and then sell them for like anywhere from 500 to a couple grand a pop. And she's like, that's great that some people can buy them, but it's unfair to fans like me who do want to just buy a, a piece of merch to for the artist and it's like you you've taken that away and you've now alienated yourself from your actual fans so it's like nft is giving back is it giving back power to the artists right to sell at whatever they want or is it alienating the fans that built the artist up to the point yeah. where they're at right now and that's that's the question for me right is like at what point does this become it becomes an auction house for mm-hmm. for the the uber rich right and is that okay? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a fine line. Like, okay, so I was in Seattle from 89 to 93 going to college at University of Washington, right? And that's when all that music was coming out of there. So, you know, I know guys that used to pay five bucks to go see Nirvana. You know what I'm saying? And now they've blown up while I'm there. You know what I'm saying? So they blew up. Pearl Jam blew up. These were all just local fucking bands. Seattle's music scene, when I was there in the early 90s, is probably one-tenth of what Atlanta scene was. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody knew everybody. And I was a goth DJ, so I would go in and, uh, you know, Pearl Jam would get done playing at a place called Rock Candy, and then I would go in and set up my turntables and play Kieran Bauhaus songs all night after after the concert. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know, is it Nirvana's fault that their tickets are $200 a concert now? Or, you know, after they've blown up and that the guy who paid $5 to see him can't, go see him anymore because he can't afford a hundred dollar ticket or are we happy that Nirvana's making money? Well, maybe not really. I mean, surely they're not still touring without Kurt. Are they? Well, no, no, I think I'm talking about from the, I'm talking about from the year 1990 okay, okay, okay. when they were still a band to the year 1994 when Kurt died, gotcha, gotcha. you know, there was a, there was a big blow up in those four years. Wouldn't you agree? But there are still opportunities for the fans. Like they were still playing very large festivals where several thousand people could attend at a time. I was just using them as an analogy, Sterling. Okay, I'm not sorry, trying to sorry, say this. Sorry. I'm just trying to say an analogy. Like, okay, so is it Marshmallow's fault that yes, he's yes, a $500,000 yes. now? Yes, it is. And and who's driving the, the ticket price? Who is setting? Well, it's not Marshmallow. Marshmallow's not the one setting that. I know that guy personally. I brought him here when he was at before he was Marshmallow. Yeah. And he's one of the coolest, dopest fucking kids on the planet. Man, he was so am I not man. happy for him that he's making money? Yeah, yeah. I guess. No, but who's who's the one setting the ticket price? Like, is it the manager? Is it is it the agency? Is it the, it's the market? Yeah, is, the it, market is, it, is it is it Live Nation? Like, I mean it's a collaboration. What I'm saying is like at some point we have to we have to pass the blame to somebody for that that know. that it's price hike. Here. And with NFTs, the price hike comes not even through the artist. It's, I mean, the artist can set a price, like an initial price, but the actual sale price is set through the richest fan. Yeah. And is that fair? Like, is it fair that the richest fan gets rights over content? And that, I don't know. It's weird. I feel that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Do you guys remember? I think it was Pearl Jam. This is probably going on 10, 15 years ago now, but I remember they were trying to do something where they wanted to sort of bypass Ticketmaster because they were upset about their own fans getting charged so much to come and see them. Well, um, they were upset about the or They were upset that what Live, Live Nation owns Ticketmaster. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, 
I'm no, I mean, I don't know anything about it. I didn't research it at all or look into it even a bit before coming on, but I just vaguely remember it. I was wondering if one of you guys might know more. So, yeah, please do. So what the problem was with scalpers, which would go in, there's a whole industry behind ticket scalping, too. I mean, you've got all these like legitimate companies that are second and third generation ticket sellers that will go in and batch buy. So Live Nation now owns Ticketmaster. You know, they control their own. You know, if you want to sell tickets, you got to book to our venues. You know what I'm saying? Like they've got them enough. There really should be an antitrust against them. But anyways, uh, <laughs> this is going to come out. All these people are going to call me like, you are fucking, what the fuck are you talking about? Monopoly. Dude, don't worry. Nobody's listening to this. Don't worry. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of TV in school. But I'm a, you know, I don't have any secrets. I don't care. If somebody doesn't fuck with me, fuck them. So, um, so Ticketmaster, what happens is scalpers will come in and batch buy like a thousand, a thousand tickets at a time. And then they'll buy them at face value and then turn around and obviously sell them for a $50 markup or whatever. So Pearl Jam was lobbying Ticketmaster to A, reduce their fees. Because what happens is, this is T2, like I'm about to spill some game on you guys that not a lot of people know. So when I sell a ticket, if I say this ticket is $50 to a show, right? Then I can go work out a deal with the ticket company like Ticketmaster or any one of these other, you know, alternative ticket companies and say, Hey, you guys got to put your fee on it. Well, their fee is usually about three or $4. And then the rest of those fees, what you usually see is a deal that we've worked out with the ticket company to use their ticketing company exclusively. And then they kick us back $10 a ticket on the fee. So what, so live nation owns Ticketmaster. So when you're paying a $35 ticket fee, not only is Live Nation keeping the ticket fee already for their own concert that they're selling you a ticket for through their ticketing company, but then they're getting a kickback as the promoter on the supposed hidden fees that we're not supposed to know anything. We don't know where those fees go. Like, I'm just the promoter guy. Fuck no, I'm getting a piece of that. But instead of me saying, because now I can say, I only charge you 50 bucks a ticket instead of $65 a ticket, even though that's really what I'm bringing in gross. See what I'm saying? Yeah. To tag even more fuck on top of that, (laughs) one of the newest people that have acquired stakes in Live Nation in particular is the Saudi crown. Oh, God. Who now has a $1 billion stake in Live Nation and therefore Ticketmaster. So like the levels of capitalist fuck on something like this just build and build and build until we eventually get the monarchy because, you know, that's always seems to be how it goes. Chop them up like the Saudis. I'm wondering why they're doing that, though. Like, why are like I I saw that a couple months ago. Like, why are they doing that? Like, what is what is going on there? Fucking money. And that deal happened like a year, two years ago. Yeah, it's It's been a minute. Two years years ago. I think it was three years. It is all about tax evasion. Like, if you listen to uh, Sterling, I know you listen to Trash Future probably as much as I do. And they did an episode where they're, I mean, they talk about startups a lot, but they did a particular episode where they talked about why there are so many of these ridiculous startups, whether it's like a company that thinks they're going to make a pizza in a van on the way to your house and then it just failed miserably. (laughs) But they spend billions of dollars in the process, you know, failing. Um, WeWork is a good example of that as well. But what they found is that a lot of these are actually just vehicles to hide Saudi money or to invest it into a country that, is not cool with Saudi Arabia. And so it's really just about back channels and tax evasion, um, which shouldn't be really surprising. But I did also want to touch on just another thing, going back to what you were talking about with the art industry and tax evasion is just 
how much fuckery can go on there because I don't know if you mentioned it while I was gra- grabbing the beer, but you can influence the appraisers as well as just bring a, a starving nobody artist and get them to just make you like literally throw paint on a canvas and then pay an appraiser to say that it's worth $10 million. And now you've created $10 million worth of value that you can use to write off um, and avoid yeah, taxation. There. So it's not even just, you know, actual valuable art. It could be anything. Yeah, and just because I actually do have something that dives into that. So just to kind of finish up that artwork thing, most importantly, as I mentioned, most of your blue chip artists are dead. There are, I think there are a handful of alive ones, but there is a reason why it's so hard for artists to break into the blue chip level. The art industry has become so commodified and manipulated that almost no artist can truly break through the blue chip level without those with the most power and influence over the industry actually personally permitting it. Most living artists don't have the opportunity to break into the blue chip level because those with the power and influence see living artists as a bigger risk. They could say the wrong thing on CNN during an interview tomorrow and completely devalue their entire collection. And their collections also are not finite so long as they're alive. If those with power and influence work hard to drive up the value of a specific artist and their artwork... A living artist could then flood the market with newer pieces and drive up the overall value, or sorry, drive down the overall value of all other existing pieces just due to the increase in accessibility of their work. Some collectors and investors will even go further and gather up as much work from an artist that they can, that they believe may be an upcoming artist, or like Mike was saying, that they can use in one of these basically, you know, hey, we got the right appraiser to say it's worth the right dollar. But in a lot of these cases, they still won't do it until that artist dies. And then after their death, after they have personally collected all the pieces or a large majority of them, they'll start releasing a few of the pieces. And typically how this works is they do a first wave and then, you know, over the next couple of years, they do a few more waves, but they make it known how many pieces there are and they typically value uh, all of these waves up front. But there's always a caveat because the capitalists have to play even the back end of the game. And a lot of times they'll hide several pieces, if not a ton of pieces from the public that they never have uh, appraised. So then after this artist has been out there for 10 years, you know, completely dead, they own the collection and they've already set all these prices. They all of a sudden find a bunch of hidden gems that have never been appraised before. Now that this artist is worth so much money and And they literally use it to inflate their own values and and create basically priceless pieces of art that, like you said, they basically invented the value of. Like the artist never reaped a single bit of this reward. And now before we go much further, I've actually got a video that I I would like to, to play just because I think this video is really important for our listeners. But before we start the video, is there any anything people want to throw on the back tail of that? Yo, shout out to that stunt Banksy pulled at an auction where he sold a fucking painting and then fucking shredded that shit. (laughs) That was pretty fucking sick. (laughs) I was about to bring Banksy up. That's the reason he's... All that shit that Sermon just said is the reason that he tries to stay anonymous because the art 
speaks for itself and has its own value without anybody knowing who's, I mean, some of us knows who's connected to it, but. Well, he also did uh, the New York thing. Well, he did, Uh, he did some really amazing stuff in New York. And I think most notably that people should really fucking pay attention to Banksy for was his work in the West Bank and Gaza. He was really trying to point some shit out there. And I think a lot of people saw it. I think a lot of it went over people's heads. People were straight up trying to salvage fucking rubble from a fucking war zone to make money off of it. Yeah. I mean, God damn, dude. But yeah, so much respect to Banksy. Yeah, he's the Don for sure. I don't know if we want really wanted to get into like, okay, someone owns the collection and it's going to get super valuable after they die. Do they get to decide when they die? Are we going to get into that or no? Like, Do is they that get too to deep? decide when the <laughs> artist dies? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying, I, I like. Oh, this is the fucking Da Vinci Code thing that fucking. No, what I'm. Yeah, I'm what I'm. Care. It's not hard to have an artist hit. I mean, worst things have happened yeah. for money. That's what Damn I'm that. saying. I was having like, the same thought earlier. If you are owning a collection of art and you are really worried about money, like, what is a life to you of an yeah. artist? Like, I, I, I don't. Probably nothing. And so, like, when we look at Michael Jackson, that's what comes to mind when I think about this. Like, he just kind of died out of nowhere. It was like sort After of the weird. After the Beatles there got was a like, hold of his uh, masters? No, no, vice versa. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, so, vice versa. Mm. He got a hold of the Beatles. Uh, yeah, he, my he bad, my Beatles bad, masters. vice versa. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, what I'm yeah. saying is like someone scoops up all the masters, right? And then you want to cash in. <laughs> so what do you do? I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to dive too deep into that if we're not trying to get into uh, conspiracy. No. Lines, I like it. Like, I mean, it's not too far-fetched, you know. Imagine how many artists have died of fentanyl in just the last 10 years. That's what I'm like, saying. It's, it's really not that hard at all to hide that. So, oh, it's, un, it's so unfortunate. Poor um, Tom Petty, you know, poor Prince, like poor every artist. And like the, Yes, like, Prince. Yes, like all this, like, oh, like the, the music industry is so just rampant with drug abuse. So it was just inevitable that this was going to happen. Okay, sure. Like. Come on. You want to know something about Prince that still breaks my heart to this day? So his last show that he ever played was yep. here in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. And it was just him and a piano. And I had fucking third row tickets to the I motherfucker remember. that somebody had given me. And I got sick and couldn't go to the show. Uh, and then he left here, got on a plane, and fucking died on the plane. This is probably something MJ can probably even back up too. But uh, in the music industry, especially when you get to major labels, a lot of them, like these labels, will pay off people who will come and be your friends and hang around you and get you on heroin so that they can talk, so that they can oh, get yeah. you to sign bullshit contracts and completely whore you out. Like they straight up use drugs at the highest level as tools against artists. And you really that's think they won't kill you? Like, you really think they're not going to kill yeah. you? Like, that's absolutely true. Like, what we do now, and you know, uh, you guys know Daniel Pollard. Oh, yeah, one of our other partners in our oh, So, like, what he does with his whole life now is he does like interventions for like celebrities and rich ass motherfuckers. That's oh, what wow. he does. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I mean, I can't even drop knowledge on like who he works with, but it's everybody. Like anybody that you've seen have a public freak out in the last five years. They call Daniel in, you know what I'm saying? He's the man. Wow. And fucking, uh, what the fuck? I'm sorry, I'm really high now. What, um, <laughs> that was my point of bringing Daniel up was, it was... Um, it loves you, it'll come back. Oh, with the, with the people trying to get artists on Smack and shit. So 
one of the things he started incorporating with, with what he does for a living uh, was to have like uh, mental health counselors go on tour with these guys. You know what I'm saying? So, because it's hard. I mean, like, you know, all we see in front of the curtain is the glitz and the glam and the fire and the lasers and the explosions and shit. But when they leave here, they're either on a tour bus or they're sitting in a hotel room by themselves or they're getting fucked up at some fucking party somewhere. That's your three choices as an artist after your show. You're either going to have a party you're going to sit in your room by yourself and fucking be lonely as fuck. You were just playing in front of 20,000 people. Now you're in a fucking hotel with no friends. Yeah. That's a fucking devastating feeling. You know what I'm saying? On top of all the sharks trying to get you fucked up so they can peel something off of you. Now you've got all this depression that sets in and who am I really? And what am I doing? And fucking are any of these people my friends? You know, I've gone through yeah. that. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not near as big as some of these acts, you know? And I'm like, I have situations where I have to fucking determine what somebody's angle for even speaking to me is. What do they want? Because most people come to me with an angle. They either want me to book them. They want me to manage them. They want me to put them on somewhere. They want me to introduce them to one of my famous buddies. They want money. They want fucking something always. You know what I'm saying? So then I got to sit back and be like, who are my real fucking friends out here? And who's just being, somebody just told me yesterday that Sterling just brought up. The guy fucking told me after I gave him opportunity after opportunity, I was only nice to you because I was trying to get opportunities from you. You know what I'm saying? So shit. Mental health is fucked up. Now imagine you're going through what I just said. I'm a grown fucking man and I'm a tough dude. But imagine you're a 17-year-old nerd who's just been making bleep blue music in their fucking mom's basement and then all of a sudden you're on <laughs> 20,000 fucking kids. How are you supposed to cope? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? How do you cope with that? You got to have mental health professionals in the music business, man. Yeah. Daniel, if you're listening to this, like, I love you, man. And I miss you, by the way. Absolutely. I would take a bullet for Daniel Pollard. I would fucking kill somebody over Daniel Pollard. He's fucking one of the greatest people to ever walk this yeah, I love Daniel. Killer dude, killer dude. All right, well, let's do this real quick. So I sent everyone the link. Why Billionaires Actually Buy Art by Read Media. It's about six minutes long, so I'm going to let this play, but it's super awesome information. Yep. Who is, who is YouTube? Who is YouTube? <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> all right, all right. I'm playing the video. See you guys in six minutes. Many masterpieces of art history have long lived outside the public view, either buried in the depths of basements of museums or tucked away in villas of the rich. However, unknown to most, the largest art collection in the world is currently collecting dust in a Geneva Freeport, a fenced off warehouse near Geneva Airport, beyond the view of the public, and outside the reach of law enforcement agencies and tax authorities. Most people are unaware of how vital the role Freeports play in the global network of high-end art transactions. We do not even have a ballpark estimate of the value of goods stored in luxury Freeports due to the laws protecting their secrecy. In 2016, Deloitte estimated that $1.6 trillion of high net worth individual wealth was allocated to art, and by 2026, they project that number to almost double. Contrary to what most people think, the high-end art world is not filled with patient art aficionados willing to drop tens of millions of dollars in the name of art. It's a world filled with mostly savvy investors, business people, and the money at elite. If you're fascinated with the different types of tax loopholes individuals and companies are able to get away with, look no further. The high-end art market is an ideal playing ground for tax dodging, offshore banking, and even money laundering. If you want to stay engaged with this channel, please take a moment to like and subscribe. Thanks so much.
Luxury art is useful for all matter of financial maneuvering, but one of the biggest reasons the wealthy elite of the world love it so much is because it's a very cost-dense physical asset. Think about all the things you can buy for $100 million. You can get a private jet, a yacht, or maybe even some pricey real estate. But these objects are huge. They have a massive physical presence. So if you want to stash your wealth discreetly, a 200-foot mega yacht is not the most low-key approach. And running costs and depreciation make it a pretty bad investment anyways. Artwork is small, easy to store, holds its value, and can be worth an insane amount of money. In 19th century Switzerland, an innovation emerged that would eventually serve the art industry very effectively. And today, as a result, there are free ports, extremely secure storage facilities offshore where valuable commodities can be kept with the utmost discretion and no one can enter without an appointment. As the economies around the world became substantially more connected when the internet emerged in the late 20th century, tax loopholes and secrecy domains acquired a much greater significance in the global economy. And for art, the Freeport became the physical equivalent of a Swiss bank account. These international free trade zones and tax-free storage facilities around the globe, which the world's biggest exists in Switzerland, Luxembourg, and Singapore, are usually exempt from tariffs, value-added tax, capital gains tax, or other charges that could be levied on the owner of the art. And if that art is held through an anonymously owned offshore company, then it is also very likely that the artwork will be outside of the scope of wealth taxes and other rules on inheritance, because its ownership is simply not declared. Let's look at a comparison. When you sell your home, the paperwork details of the sale of that asset are all available to the public, including your name and the previous owners. But when someone sells an artwork at a freeport or even an auction, no matter how big the purchase is, the identity is typically concealed. So the paperwork might identify the work coming from a European collection, but the buyer usually has no clue with whom he or she is dealing with. Sometimes, surprisingly, even the auction house may not know who the seller is. So in brief, you have a market connected by a large network of luxury free ports with a liquidity pool in the multi-trillions of dollars, protected by secrecy and designated by governments around the world as a tax shelter. And to top it off, external and international watchdogs do not regulate the art market as they do with financial markets. Works of art are really tough to value financially. They do not have a fixed value as currency does, and its value can be purely subjective. As a result, the price of art can be inflated legitimately or through other means such as conspiracy among bidders at an auction. So here Here's where the art of tax scheming in the art world becomes very interesting. Collectors can receive tax benefits by donating pieces from their collection to museums, acting as a tax credit system, offsetting the tax payable by the taxpayer. This is where buying low and donating high is really beneficial. Since the charitable deduction would take the current value of the work into account, not the amount the collector originally paid for it. So if you have a big tax bill coming up, and most billionaires do, you could, in theory, buy a large collection of art from a no-name artist at a really low price. Drum up some interest in this artist by locating and paying a reputable art dealer to campaign for this new artist. They will in turn pitch this artist to exquisite magazines how this new artist is changing the landscape of modern art. Once this artist has received some notoriety by the press, bring a few pieces of art from your new collection to an auction house for sale. Now here's where the fun begins. Once the art is up for sale at the auction, you will call in a few fake bids to artificially inflate the price of the art because, well, that's legal in this world. Now you've effectively sold the art back to yourself. And you might be wondering, what has this done for me outside of losing a 2% commission to the auction house? And well, you shouldn't be feeling buyer's remorse because now your artworks on paper are worth a substantial amount of money, raising the net value of your art collection significantly. And the value on this paper is legitimized by historical sales figures at the auction where you bid up the price yourself. 
in reality, the new value of this artwork would be a tough sell to other collectors. So you aren't really getting any richer. But what you can do is donate a few pieces of your art collection to a museum as a charitable donation. This means you will be able to report a large donation to the IRS by just giving away paintings that originally were worth close to nothing. And with any luck, the museum might name a wing after you. In the end, outside of Uncle Sam, this is a win-win all around. A win for you because you save an incredible amount in taxes. A win for the artist because they have new notoriety in the art world. A win for the art dealer because they get to charge you for their services. A win for the auction house who get to charge you a percentage commission of the sale. And a win for the museum because they receive free art. Looking from the outside in, all of the key actors are incentivized to play along in this positive feedback loop because, well, they're better off doing so. And there's nothing inherently illegal with what they're doing. Art is weird. It's difficult to understand the hidden meaning behind it, but it's more difficult to understand their markets and crazy high prices. So why on earth would billionaires stash a significant portion of their net worth in art? Artwork is rare, people expect it to keep appreciating value, it's discreet, and you can pull off financially funny business with it. Artwork is just another tool billionaires use for the accumulation of wealth and distribution of capital worldwide, an effort to ensure their money is working for them and not for some government somewhere. That was crooked as shit. The B-roll was sick, though. (laughs) (laughs) The guy at the computer like this. (laughs) I was like, oh, shit. I was like, this is the weirdest B-roll I've ever seen. All fucked up. That was fucked up, right? That was infuriating. That was basically everything you just said in the video. Yeah. But way better. That guy said it way better. <laughs> and yeah. that's uh, on, on YouTube. Weird. I was like, boy, you said it, goddamn shit. <laughs> on YouTube, uh, his account is Reed Media, R E E D Media. He's only got 323 subscribers, and those were bars. Like, this dude, no, I mean, it, it terrified me when I watched it. I was like, fuck these motherfuckers. Like, oh my God, yeah. the rich pay damn near fucking zero in taxes. They have so many loopholes like this where, I mean, they can get around $10 million with a piece of fucking artwork. I mean, they can literally write off every fucking thing they owe. And so the responsibility of the tax burden to actually pay for infrastructure is now on us. Or either that tax burden doesn't get paid and now the road has potholes and our tires pop and now that burden of our tires are on us. That's so, why Trump okay. hey, I'm like, I seven hundred fifty in Texas. Fuck y'all. You know what I'm saying? Like, and the people were like, "Damn, dog!" And he was like, "Yeah, I'm smart like that." So, like, okay, so Sterling, okay, so a couple things. Yeah. Yes, the the rich need to be taxed more. Like, we need yes. we need like they could solve all the world's problems in yes. like tomorrow. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but at the same time. Oh, you're breaking up again. What's that? Fucking <laughs> oh, libertarian on are you shitting me? Like, <laughs> swear to God. No, at the same time, no, I'm just uh, okay. All I'm saying is like, are you gonna are you gonna determine like what is the art worth? If the art isn't worth ten million dollars, what is it worth? And and who are you to determine that? It it needs more regulation. That that's what it really You're is. gonna regulate what art is worth? Blaine, well, let's hear, should... Blaine's got something. Hold on. We hear what Blaine has to say about it. Yeah, for sure. So I think a very fucking important distinction between this art market is the fucking diamond industry. That shit just screams the same fucking shit. Diamonds are not rare. If anyone is listening, yeah. 
please know diamonds are not fucking rare. Certain types are. They're amazing stones. Don't get me wrong. They're the strongest substance on earth and all that good stuff. But they are not fucking rare. They can be man-made, which should, in fact, drive the price down. But it does not. And that is because people put diamonds on reserve. They keep it back and they don't flood the market. So there's market control there, which is the same kind of thing that we're seeing with art. Um, We actually have a very interesting story that also involves a tax write-off. So Jaren and I took a jewelry class with this guy who worked for Tiffany's for years. And of course, Tiffany's is like probably the mastermind behind the fucking diamond market. They they made it. They created it. He was responsible for the biggest sales in Tiffany's history. It was something crazy, like 30 or $60 million. And it was from this person who was from Nokia, who was based out of like Seoul. Seoul. Yeah, Seoul, Korea. And he was trying to make a purchase to avoid paying taxes. This dude said he didn't even look at what he was buying. And these are the rarest of the rare stones. These stones, I mean, are jaw-droppingly rare. There's probably one of the entire thing that we've ever discovered on planet Earth. This dude didn't even look at them, just tried to get a lump sum to purchase so he could avoid a certain tax bracket back where he's from. Secondly, to back that up too, as far as diamonds are concerned, Tiffany's is literally the reason that we are told to get a diamond for a girl for her wedding. I mean, this it's not even an old construct. That's yeah. 20th century. And, the, you know, this is related to art because it's jewelry and it's the manipulation of the worth of art. And beyond that, I think that, that jewelry is especially important to think about because, you know, you give a wedding ring to somebody. That is like the most obtuse showing of like art means something. And even though the wedding ring is very on the nose, it's the same thing for music. It's the same thing Mm -hmm. for a book. It's the same thing for poetry. It's the same thing for a painting. It means something to somebody. And that's where we derive that worth from. And the fact that like Tiffany's was able to go in and turn a few knobs and open up a warehouse and keep a bunch of surplus diamonds in it and control it like OPEC style with oil and just create this American construct of do you love her? Buy her a diamond. It's going to cost three months of your salary. Buy her a diamond. Otherwise, you don't love her. It's just the manipulation of human emotion and worth into this just obtuse, gross artistic display. When somebody comes to me and asks for a wedding ring, I, you know, if they want a diamond, I'll do it. But most of the time, I'm like, do something else. Don't get a diamond. Do something don't else. I would make more money if you got a diamond, but do something else because fuck that. So, well, but, so when we talk about art, like who determines the worth? Like, how do we, how do we regulate that? Because like, obviously, yes, the diamond industry is inflated. If you go to a jewelry store and you ask for a gold band, and if you go to a jewelry store and you ask for a wedding band, you will get vastly different prices for the same product. Like there's obviously like some, some marketing going on and and they will upsell you three times for a wedding band. The same thing you would get for the same gold band. If you just ask for a gold band, when we talk about paintings, when we talk about art, and this this is me coming from my like as an artist, right? Like, how do we value that? Like, and when we talk about NFTs, when we talk about paintings, like it's there's some parallels here, and I, I hope we can maybe talk about that. Like, obviously they're laundering money through paintings, yeah. like obviously, <laughs> like that's obviously happening, right? But like, if they're not doing it, right? Like, what is the price? 
And like, how do we stop that? Like, how, like, what do we do about that? My thing, and, and first, let me say where my heart is because I'm a communist bastard. So it's like my heart, my heart says what the real answer is that we make every industry, including the art industry, a public industry, and that we rigorously uh, regulate these industries to prevent inflation and correct inflation. But even outside of my communist values, even just in a, a properly regulated uh, capitalist market, you can still have government entities that do actively watch over industry. And when someone is clearly laundering money, which I don't think anyone thinks is not happening here, that they are clearly inflating values to take advantage of getting out of paying taxes. People are breaking laws here. The laws just haven't been written yet. So we need to come in here and write the laws. That's my opinion. Okay, so at what point do you say that this value, like this this art is worth this much? And at what point are you inflating um, values? Like that that is a blurred line yeah, right but now. It, it's, at, it, it's gray, best case scenario. But what I'm saying is we are so far past the gray area and what's currently going on. We can push it back to that, you know, who's to really say, but within a certain margin. But we're way past that. I'm just saying we push it back there to a, to a fair margin, but when everyone on the planet knows that tax evasion and inflation are happening, then clearly some rules need to be put in place. We can do better. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I would say that's, you know, probably where the idea of markets actually does come into play, like where the art just becomes worth whatever anyone is willing to pay for it. Once you remove all the obvious meddling and just, you know, games that people are playing with it, where they have turned it into something beyond what it's meant to be. But I'm also kind of sitting here wondering, like, why, as you know, a group of at least three Marxists out of the seven of us tonight, why are we even talking about how best to commodify art to begin with? Like, fucking, don't do it. Like, just don't <laughs> commodify art and let people actually create for the sake of creating, because they're not constrained by having to do it for their survival. But whatever, we just got to bring back Stalin. He'll fix it. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. No, I, I Stalin... agree with that for sure. Especially the Stalin part. Especially the Stalin. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely like don't don't regulate the market right but like look into the laundering right like yep. like regulate that shit like look into that shit but like if art is worth something then that's fine and and yeah i'm probably in the the minority here as a purist like yeah art should be made for the sake of art for sure yeah yeah but even what you're saying can I even, back on the for a second because yeah. i want to talk about something that means something to me so yeah well let me uh, let me get jaren uh mj just let me real quick let me see what jaren has to say and then uh we can jump on diamonds again just real quick if we could meet and i'm completely in my own mind utopian wise yeah, far yeah. removed from this but as far as meeting in the middle between the two points being made here all I'm going to say is if UBI were a thing and people could afford to get groceries and get gas and have water and electricity and like necessities and just fucking live, you know, in a highly developed country that's rich as fuck, then yeah, they could produce art and not have to worry about how am I going to survive. Yeah. So like somewhere in between Stalin and like billionaires using fucking... <laughs> Art to launder money to their children. I feel there like is, media. there is something realistic, which is in the U.S. Yeah, we should have universal fucking basic income because it would allow artists to create and and be more free than they are. Because I've been on that side of the coin and it sucks. 
it sucks when you know you're good at something and you can't monetize enough to even justify like getting Burger King. Yeah. You know, that's not good. But anyway, MJ, take it away. <laughs> I completely agree with the UBI, first of all. And second of all, um, I believe that, yeah, a lot, I mean, there's, I say it all the time. There's a lot of talented people that are sitting at home because they can't, they can't, so they got to work. They got to go do their cubicle thing every day. Mm-hmm. And then they're exhausted from that. And they don't have any time to put into the thing that they're talented about or the thing that they're passionate about or the thing that they feel like they are going to rip their skin off if they can't express it. You know what I'm saying? That's a true artist. Mm-hmm. You know, like I deal with a lot of fake artists and a lot of, real artists all the fucking time. And to me, the difference is if it literally is going to make you rip your fucking own fucking hair out, if you can't express yourself, you're a fucking artist. If you're here for the beer and pussy or you're here for the fucking, you thought you were going to make a name for yourself or money, you're not an artist. You know what I'm saying? An artist has to express, period. And if we had, you're right, we're the richest country in the world. If we had a, a way for people, I mean, even if we can't come to an agreement on UBI, which, you know, I think is far-fetched the way our country is divided right now. Although, I mean, look at how crackpot that theory was five years ago and how, like, how, like, accepted it is now. People are like, yeah, it's a good fucking idea. You know what I'm saying? I, I say it all the time. We were talking about tattoos earlier, obviously, because you're a tattoo artist, but you know, think about the 90s when like skateboarding and tattoos and even nose piercings were so crazy and, you know, underground and so rebellious and oh my God, and just, you know, stigmatized, you know what I'm saying? And now those are part of our mainstream culture, you know what I'm saying? It's the same thing that happens with, I mean, with dance music, it happened. It was so underground and now it's part of the mainstream, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, it's, do you win off that or do you just try and keep doing what you were doing in the, in the nineties and just being like, yo, I'm not going to, I put my whole life into this. Shouldn't I make money off of it now? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a fine line. It's, it's a fine line to, I deal with it all the time. Cause I got to look in the mirror every day and be like, you're a fucking dope dude, dog. Keep doing you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but at the end of the day, like, do I wish things were different? Absolutely. Go ahead, Jaren. They're just not. I'm I'm about to bum the tankies out. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Please still be yeah, our go friends. on, go on. Please still be our friends after this. I think that UBI is a better guarantee than a jobs guarantee. I look, agree. Look, yeah. Look, um, even if we can't get that, that's what I was gonna say is even if we can't get the UBI, let's fund the arts a little bit more at least. You know what I'm saying? Like we have zero funding for the fucking arts in this country. Zero. Yeah. The the truth is like even it like well, as far as our national budget, it might as well be zero. I think it's point zero zero one seven percent. Yeah. Is what the national budget for arts is. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And as far as comparing like UBI to like the USSR, I mean, just in all fairness, <laughs> no, 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 and, and I'm not even I'm not even defending against what you just said. As far as comparing the two, one thing you have to keep in mind is the USSR in that time really had to have everybody working. Like we are so far advanced beyond that. I mean, just in automation alone, we really can do things that the USSR would not have had the ability to do. And UBI, I, I believe UBI would have been a tool the US USSR would have eventually adopted, you know, their own way of doing it. But 
So I don't I don't think that, you know, UBI is like anti-communist or anti-socialist or anti, you know, any super left-wing ideology. Mm-hmm. I'll say this. I want to get into NFTs and I know we're kind of already running late. Um, how's everybody on time? Is everyone good for a little bit longer? What time is it? I got to do another podcast at 10. Yeah, it's an hour and 10 minutes. I'm good. Um, I would like, before we dive into NFTs, um, I do want to just say one thing, and I'm not trying to stir up a lot of this stuff that was going on with the Atlanta Facebook community over the last couple of days, but <laughs> but there there was something I read. You know, I read a couple of the things getting posted, and I just want to say, the first thing I saw of Sedge is I was like, I, I get what he's saying. I wish he would have re- worded it differently but then Callie made a point that goddamn drove it home for me that I agree with so hard and that MJ has made a real similar comment to and that's the fact that MJ has said Atlanta never closed and then Callie's statement Callie is from uh, Midnight Panda he's a DJ group with him and Sejay Callie made the statement in one of these live videos he did kind of recapping a bunch of drama he said if you want to blame someone as far as DJs going out there and playing shows uh, during the pandemic, blame your government. It's not the DJ's fault that they have to provide for their families. It's not the DJ's fault that they can't afford to just set by and their landlord coming knocking on their doors. And like MJ has said in the past is Atlanta never closed to begin with. We don't even have local well, support. I didn't, hold on. I didn't exactly say that. We did okay. close for a little while. Okay. Because... You know, fucking that shit was serious last March. You know what I'm saying? We closed till like about September. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And then and so what I said was, and I went on the news to say this because our crime rate exploded over the last couple of months because all these other cities are locked down. So all these people from my buddy Armani was in Philly over the holidays. That's where he's from, right? So fucking he goes up there to see his family for the holidays and they're on the radio. Like hip hop commercials on the radio, like we can't go out here, so we're going to Atlanta. Let's go, you know. And I'm like, yo. So all these kids from, uh, not even kids, but all these people from New York, Philly, Chicago, they're all in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and they have been for like the last three months. So what I said was, Jesus. Atlanta will party even if there's meteors falling from the sky because Atlanta's got to go out. You know what I'm saying? We're a party town. It's all what I, what they didn't include in the news interview. Cause that was like a 20 minute interview and they took two lines out of it cause they're the press. So uh, <laughs> what I was saying was we don't have any other attractions here. Like our attraction is our nightlife. Yeah. We don't have mountains. We don't have an ocean. We don't have any natural, like, you know, we're a city of forests, you know what I'm saying? So we don't have, any reason for people to come here except for conventions and what we're famous for. And that's our nightlife and our strip clubs. Yeah. And that's just how ATL is. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's what we do. We fucking party. You know what I'm saying? So, and then we had all-star weekend two weekends ago, you know what I'm saying? And there was like 15 shootings and fucking in, in two days and fucking, um, you know, we just had the Asians get shot up last night at the fucking spas, eight yeah. fucking people dead. I mean, you know, Atlanta is cracking and that doesn't necessarily mean in a good way. You know what I'm saying? It is cracking in a good way, but it's cracking the fuck off too, because all these other people are in town and don't know how the fuck we roll in Atlanta that we don't put up with none of that shit. We don't stand in the fucking street pushing each other and yelling like they do in New York. Well, you want some? You want some? We don't do all that. We just fucking shoot you. You know what I'm saying? So fucking Atlanta is cracking the fuck off. And it's fucking crazy here right now. 
It's crazy. But I moved to Buckhead 15 years ago because I was tired of looking over my shoulder every fucking where I went. So I was like, I'm going up to the old money. And now it's cracking the fuck off here. I live two blocks from the governor's mansion, dog. It's cracking the fuck off of my front yard. Carjackings and shit all the fucking time. And Buckhead is not having it. They're like, we're going to create our own city. Going to start our own police force. Like, that's what they're pushing right now. It is cracking the fuck off here. And that's what I said. Atlanta's cracking and always will be. Poison to cure the poison. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. What's that going to do to help anyone? People are committing more crimes because they're desperate because they're fucking starving right now. Because they've been out of work for fucking right. a year and fucking, and then you add that on top of people coming from other cities that don't know the culture yeah. here. And then fucking that's just going to create conflict. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Would you yeah I mean, if people were working or had incomes, it wouldn't matter what city you were fucking in because you'd be straight already. Yeah. Would you have and that's why they're coming right here because that's where the money is. The the government definitely needs to step in, and they should have stepped in a long time ago. And yeah. and that's that's the ultimate point here, right? Yeah. But if the government isn't going to step in, the people have to. And and that's I think my whole point through all of this is like if the government isn't going to take care of its people, and and not from an economic standpoint, like that is obviously the government's responsibility, but from a physical and just. Like if we're not going to keep each other safe from a pandemic, like if the government isn't going to do it, we have to do it ourselves. And and my whole point through all of this is like the DJ should not be playing shows at, at clubs that aren't following protocol. Like they should be refusing those shows. And And I know that like we all have to eat. We all have to pay rent. But like a lot of DJs and a lot of producers have found other ways to make money and yeah. and I'm not saying everyone, I'm not saying, I'm not saying everyone can do that. Like, I know a lot of people rely on this, right. But like at at the same time, at at the same time, like, I'm just saying like, if the government isn't going to mandate anything, like we have to mandate it ourselves. Like we can't rely on the government to take care of us if they're not going to do it. And so like DJs need to be performers, DJs, whatever, like they need to be more responsible just like about playing shows because if you play a show for $150 and that gets someone sick and they get killed, is that $150 really worth it? Like, honestly, like, honestly, like I've lost four people in the last like couple months to this shit. And like, like people that were like fathers to me, like, like honestly, and like until it hits you and that at that level, like you don't understand it. Like the people who don't take it seriously, honestly, like have never felt that loss. And like, that's the hard part is like, I don't want anyone to have to like, wait until that point where they lose someone close to them to like take this shit seriously. Like it, it honestly makes me mad. Like, and, and that's, that's, that's all I feel is like just anger at like people who don't take this shit seriously. And I get, everyone has to make money. We live in this society, whatever, like fuck it. But like, honestly, it just makes me mad. Like I, I don't understand why people aren't taking this shit seriously. I just wish. I don't, I don't know. know. That's like assuming that you're inside their psychology, Chris, like, I think that's a really privileged point of view, to be honest, because I think not everybody how am I has privileged to... by losing four people close to me. Like, how am I privileged by oh, losing four people on, close to me? Remember who you're talking to, dog. I've lost fucking more people than, any, than everybody on this thing put together in the past year. I'm just saying, man, like, I, I don't understand. Like, I, I don't get it. I, like, I understand I where you're coming from if it was last March, but it's this March now. And now people, the things are open and they have opportunities to make money. 
So I understand that you're upset about your friends dying. I'm upset about my friends dying too. But at the same time, these motherfuckers literally have to eat. Not like I want to eat better, but like I want to buy ramen for the fucking week because they don't have any other income. And it's real easy to be like, oh, go find another source of income, but there's no fucking jobs because nothing's fucking open, dog. And like I'm saying, that's the government's fault. Like I'm saying, like at the backbone of all of this, it's not it's not anyone's fault, but we still have to be looking out for each other. Like, that's all I'm saying. If I can interject real quick, one thing is, A, my heart is 100% with, with Chris on this one. I've lost multiple family members over this last year, and I've got another family member who's probably only got another month or so. I, I'm praying that that's not the case, but it's it's looking really rough for another family member of mine. Um, my heart... Oh, shit almost killed me. I had it in December. I couldn't get out of bed for 13 days. Yeah. It literally tried to kill me. I was yeah. in the bed talking to myself like, you're a fucking badass motherfucker. <laughs> you're going to push through this. You're a fucking OG. You're not going to go to the hospital because if you go to the hospital, you're going to fucking die. Fucking, I was talking to myself like that for days on end. Yeah. That shit tried to kill me. I take it all the way serious. Yeah. And the only reason I go out now is because I got fucking antibodies. Yeah. And I'm fucking tired of sitting at home. I can't so like, do it. Why aren't, why aren't promoters enforcing mass mandates? And I'll say, I'll say this, and it's kind of like where Chris is starting. You're, you're 100% right. You made a comment about that the DJs and everyone else involved should be pushing harder for, for more mandates and for more rules to make sure people are being safe. But there's a big issue here, and that's that in the scene of people going out, you're going to have a lot larger portion of people who actually don't even believe in this shit. And after I praised <laughs> Callie, let me throw one actual bit of shade on Callie. And Callie, you know my, you're, you know, you're my boy and we go way back and I love you, dog. But you made a comment in one of those videos and you said... How did you word it that, you know, that they've proven that COVID was manufactured in a lab and homie, I get why you think that I get you've, you've seen some shit like that. Let me be 100% clear. That's not the truth. That's not the case. And that is manufactured, terrible fucking information. And there are even people on the left, like our homies, like Callie can even be subject to some of this crazy information. So when you actually take the large majority of people who are going out, who are actually on the right, you create an environment of people who are going to basically say, fuck this club if they make me wear a mask. And it's a horrible fucking situation and everyone's in a horrible situation. But I mean, I gotta, my heart again with, with Chris, but I'm, I'm with MJ in the sense that I understand that people have bills and they have to pay bills. What do you got Blaine? As an artist and a small business owner who did not receive unemployment, who did not receive a goddamn thing from this fucking useless government, even though I pay in over 35% of taxes every year, I've written checks that have been part of tax. The reality is, this is what we're facing, living in the belly of the beast of capitalism. We are fucking struggling to survive while big corporations like Delta receives fucking bailouts. <laughs> twice to buy back stocks yeah. bailouts to buy back stocks yeah. like we are crazy. trying to figure out how to fucking survive while a multi the biggest well, they monopolize. in the history <laughs> of ever literally and monopolized for what like where are we flying to right now why would you bail them out when people are literally dying to keep their houses and putting themselves in terrible working conditions my job is not a necessity in the eye of most people in the public, but it's a necessity to me because I have to live and I have to eat. And that's what a lot of people are facing. Mm -hmm. DJs, musicians, entertainers, 
people who don't have what people would consider a necessary job, it's necessary to them. Yeah. And yeah, it's frustrating. How the fuck do you deal with that in this kind we of- We can do both. Like we can absolutely do both. We can all make money. Promoters, clubs, DJs, we can all make fucking money still. We just have to be safe about it. And that's the thing that's not mm-hmm. happening. And that's the part that I'm upset about. And that's it. Sure. Like, I love you. I love you, MJ. Like I, I understand um, like every, everyone's going through some fucking crazy fucking shit. I get that. I'm just saying I wish people would be like, take this shit seriously. That's that's all I'm saying. Absolutely. Right I'm Wear your you. fucking mask. Wash your goddamn hands. Jesus fucking Christ. That's not a lot to ask for. Yeah. Well, I mean, not gazing on people and washing your hands is something you're supposed to learn in kindergarten. But <laughs> just to drive the point home, though, you know, the fucking financial meltdown of 2008, which is mm. quite famous uh, for being a shit show and a, a bipartisan shit show at that. I think ended up costing about $950 billion. And the first COVID bailout alone, alone was multi-trillion dollars, multi, not even one trillion, multi-trillion. And all I got out of it was, you know, a a fuck me t-shirt, not even that, unfortunately, (laughs) but, you know, a check that um, I immediately sent back for my quarterly taxes. (laughs) Honestly, it cost everybody more to send me the goddamn check. And then I got a letter from Trump two months later that said, you're welcome. And, you know, (laughs) the thing is for me, like, I think I think that the arts are so incredibly valuable in one sense, insofar as like they do give you this like revolutionary feeling. And I think that people can act on that feeling. And I don't think there would have been a single revolution in history that would have worked without the arts. It's not a thing which. By the way, I've never gone back and looked at like looked at like Bolshevik propaganda posters. They're fucking badass. There's a whole subreddit uh, dedicated to it. But aside from that, it's got oh, this man, dual-edged man. thing, is which is what I really liked from what uh, Cosper had me read. Which I'm, I really wish he was on here for this. But like, it it talks a lot about how art can also be used for that manufactured consent. So in the most obtuse way, we can look at American Sniper about Chris Kyle, you know, that makes everybody be like, oh, the poor guy, he shot 80 Afghani people. He must be so tortured. And then in its its more subtle incarnation, we can look at something like V for Vendetta, where like, obviously as a leftist, I watch it and I'm like, fuck yeah. But if I was a fucking just idiot, you know, Republican, I'd watch it and be like, oh, this is about... You know, the communists taking over and I better go play Rage Against the Machine and stomp around in a parking lot with my guy Fox mask, you know, and and what that does is it for the leftists, for people who aren't ready to radicalize, that sort of media gives them that moment of feel good dopamine. And for the people who don't get the message, it reinforces whatever the fuck they want at all. And in the meantime, it's profitable. So, you know, capitalism to me is so multifaceted, so multi-pronged. It's a goddamn hydra. It's really mm-hmm. impressive how, how it can co-opt anything. And we talked about this with Jamie. I mean, look, how it co-opts, look how it co-ops Republicans listening to Rage Against the Machine in the first place. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. It's so fucking weird. You're like, oh, God. wait. <laughs> like, what? Do you guys remember when Tom Morello, the guy like, Shot a tweet at Tom Morello 
the guitar yeah. player from Rage Against the Machine, and he was like, "I liked you guys better when you weren't political." And Tom Morello was like, "When the fuck were we political? What the fuck are you talking and, about?" And then an- another guy wrote a tweet and said, "Yo, I just found out Rage Against the Machine is leftist, so I'm going back to Rise Against." And then Rise Against is like, "Are you fucking shitting me, dog?" <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! Oh, no, no, dude, you got to go back to trapped if you want to get yeah. your people. Like, what was their song? What was that trap song? Goddamn! Uh, back up, I'll take you on. Headstrong oh, to take God. on anyone. <laughs> I'll suck off anyone. Yeah, <laughs> What a shit song from a shit band from the 50s and shit. I'm so embarrassed I know that. Can we cut this mic? Yeah. Please no. go with God. My career's on the line, <laughs> dude. No. No. no, it's, it's going in. It's in the cold. That's going to, yeah, that's going in the cold open. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the intro from here on out. Yeah, the intro music. I'm fucking trapped. That's great. I'm glad you knew it. It would have bugged me. If we got off this, I would have looked it up. Yeah. I'll just add it to my resume. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Chris, you raised your hand like five or six different times. I don't know if you remember Sorry, what point you had, but Chris is going to take the NFT segment for the last yeah, 20 let's, minutes let's, of the podcast. Yeah, let's jump to that. Cool. Yeah, I don't remember raising my hand, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, we can jump into NFTs. Are you guys ready? Yeah, I'm a little. Can I say yeah, anything about that I wanted to say first, Chris? Yeah, for sure. And by the way, I love you. And I, I, I do feel offended by you calling me privileged by the way but like honestly i like I'm, I'm, on your, I'm on your team bro like i hope you know that yeah i know that and i feel bad about using that word that's not the exact word i meant yeah i, I was just you. saying chris has been shot he can't he, he's not privileged he's been shot yeah <laughs> for sure but i i wasn't privileged was the wrong word to use in that situation what i was trying to say is it's not as easy as sitting saying you can find a different way of income. That's all I was trying to say. I get it. And, and yeah. And like, I'm not involved in the scene anymore. Like I get that. Like I, I understand like I'm a, I'm an outsider of, of sorts right now, yeah. but like I really am on the side of like, I understand what it means to be an, a struggling artist. And I can't imagine, like I, I literally can't imagine what, what people are going through right now. I just, I, I want everyone to be safe. That's all it is. But you know, you also got to look at the pressure, not even the, like, I need money to eat, but like, look at, I mean, look at this kid that fucking quit yesterday and caused all this for before yesterday. His whole thing was, I refuse to come out and play right now. So all these other people are passing me and becoming famous while I'm sitting at home. And that's the reason he was like, I'm quitting. You can't get get mad at that. Like if you're, if you're making that choice, you can't get mad at that. But at the same time, there are certain things you should be mad at and that's the government and people that aren't being, aren't taking this seriously. So that's, yeah, that's, I think we're on the same page. Me and Armani throw shows together and that's something we've been talking about since January is like, when is the right time to come back? Because like, if we don't come back soon enough, then we're left in the dust because everybody's going to move on past us. And then nobody cares about us anymore because we're a thing of the past. You know what I'm saying? But if we wait too late, then we're, we're passed up. If we come in too early, then we're fucking pieces of shit. So it's a real, I mean, it's a struggle dog. Like we're all trying to figure it out. It's just, it's not as easy as just a blanket statement. That was really what I was trying to say. And I didn't I, mean to use the word privileged. I just meant 
maybe myopic maybe wasn't the I, I i totally get it i i really do and and this is this is post capitalism dystopia basically yep. so. right hell world hell world anyway just, nfts let's NFTs. get to it <laughs> non non-fuckable tokens that's right <laughs> well tokens cannot be fucked count me out <laughs> The worst kind of token. <laughs> Which token can we fuck? That's the segment. That's the whole thing. <laughs> and that was the Turn Leftist podcast. <laughs> Later. Uh, walk us through what an NFT is in a, in a simple term for our listeners. Okay, so uh, let's get to it. Yeah, non-fungible tokens, as was described to me about two hours ago. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, so NFTs are at a at a high level, right? Are basically ways to auction off your art, you know, backed by blockchain technology in a way that you can sell art. It can be resold, and then you get a commission basically off every resale of that. Um, so it's a different way to distribute exclusive pieces of art. Um, it absolutely, I think, in my opinion, does not replace the core distribution model like Spotify and, and other DSPs. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it does offer a way of, you know, to artists to take back kind of uh, the distribution model um, that is currently available. So it's great for artists who are trying to maybe release something that is digital and uh, exclusive. It's not something that should be mass distributed, but at the same time, they can reap value without a label as an intermediary uh, or an, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, so it does give some value there. Does that explain it? Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Cool. So uh, one of the main questions that I've run into talking about NFTs is people are asking like, what is the purpose of buying essentially this original piece of art from somebody when you could get a duplicate online? Like if it's an image that could screen capture and then reshare, or if it's music that could rip it like, you know, Napster or used to do or LimeWire used to do just without all the porn attached. <laughs> you know, so this is I think this is honestly the best thing that I took out of this Walter Benjamin paper was he was describing something called the aura of art, which is the sense of what art is when you see it from the creator in that point in time and just sort of the intangible sublime of that piece of art. And this is why art is such like an interesting thing to talk about on a leftist podcast, because usually we're dealing with like materialism, labor, (laughs) demand, definite things. And in this case, we're talking about like esotericism in a way. And it's interesting because like, you know, could I buy a Stratocaster at Guitar Center tomorrow? (laughs) I could totally do that. But is David Gilmore's Strat worth more just because he touched it? That's the aura. That's the aura of art. So when we're talking about NFTs, what we're really talking about to me is maintaining that aura of an art piece, but in a digital format. So it's, it's not so much like it's really a new technology. Well, not technology, a new concept. It is a new technology. But what we're really paying for with an NFT, which started with CryptoKitties, by the way, which is pretty cool <laughs> if you haven't looked into it. But, that sounds uh, like yeah, something you're, you're, I shouldn't look into. Did you go libertarian on me? 
<laughs> oh hell no! We all know what that means. Oh hell! No. <laughs> oh, hell. Yeah, but what you're getting at the quadrant that we don't even include. <laughs> what what you're getting at is is exactly right. Like, and and this is the parallel that we we watched the video about, right? Like, it's basically mm-hmm. an auction house. That's all it is, and it's not like blockchain is great for some things, and and it's great for for revolutionizing the way that we transmit data. But with this specific application it just seems like a glorified auction house because what you're doing is putting up art for sale and anyone can bid on it just like fucking ebay and when they own it they don't have to sell it they can hold on to it forever and they don't like at at what point do we say like this is not okay because like someone bid something up to a point where average fans can enjoy it they can hold on to it forever and yeah like you know, screenshots, all that stuff, you know, Napster, whatever, like, yes, there's ripping out there. Right. But when you own the license to something, which is basically what this is, like, it's not just selling the art itself. It's selling the exclusive copyright to that piece of art. And so if it gets, you know, pirated or whatever, that person can go after them with a copyright lawsuit saying, Hey, like I own this and you're, you know, whatever. So there's, repercussions there but again like they don't have to sell it they could hold on to it until they fucking die and they can resell it for whatever amount it's worth later on down the line so it's exactly the same as what i see with this like auction art buying stuff like that the only difference is that the value is backed by cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency you pay taxes on like you definitely uncle sam knows well if you report it uh, they know exactly what cryptocurrency, the, those are securities now uh, that you have to pay taxes on. So you will, you will end up paying taxes on them. So while they have a little bit less uh, of a loophole, I guess, compared to the art racket, uh, physical art racket, uh, there is still some blatant kind of obscurity as to like, is this good for artists? Is this good for fans? Is this a good deal or a bad deal? My, my personal opinion is this is a bad deal, not only for artists, but for, for fans as well. Yeah, me and Chris were talking earlier, and my first thing when I heard about NFTs was I immediately was like, okay, this is more opportunity for tax evasion. But as me and Chris were talking, one thing I will say is, like like you say, it, it's very tracked. There is a firm paper trail that you can't avoid, at least not that we're aware of, in the way that you can avoid it with actual uh, blue chip artwork so it may be harder to get away with basically tax evasion uh, because I mean again how do you donate this to a museum to even really get the biggest benefit that uh, this artwork tax evasion is actually worth so you can you can launder money I mean like like Bitcoin has historically been a place to launder yeah. drug money things like that so like this can be a way of laundering that money and, and putting it into to physical yeah. or digital assets. Yeah. At the same time, you're still paying Uncle Sam, yeah. I guess, you know, because they do track that. So if there is any kind of money laundering or fuckery going on, I don't think it's going to be inherent with the, the fact that it's an NFT. I think you can just buy and sell that like any other item. And so yeah. you would just use all the normal avenues afforded to you, you know, being a wealthy person and having access to all the loopholes. But I mean, cryptos in general, yeah, they definitely do. Like, I know people who want to avoid paying taxes on their crypto gains will 
just make offline transactions. Like you can literally just hand people your Bitcoin on a piece of paper. And if you just do that in cash and you met them off of the Bitcoin version of Craigslist or whatever, you can absolutely do that and avoid a taxable transaction that anyone knows about. Uh, so that definitely gets done. It's just difficult to, I mean, obviously the larger the amount, the more you're going to have to split that up and it'll be very, you know, impractical. Interesting. I think this all could get into a bigger uh, conversation that we should have about crypto and Bitcoin in general. I feel like we should probably spend an entire episode on that as well. My brief explanation of it, it would be like almost, obviously the coins themselves don't exist. What its technology really is doing is that it's a ledger that can't be changed. So you can never spend the same coin twice. You can never shortchange somebody on a transaction. It's all out there for everyone to see and it can't go away as long as any of the computers that are running that program, the Bitcoin program, uh, as long as they are still on, which is now obviously millions and millions of computers at this point, it will never go away. So you'd literally have to destroy all of those computers to, to get it to just go away. So, so really, at what point do we support it and what point do we regulate it? Well, I don't know if that's even the question. I think that it's made to avoid regulation. That's the, pretty much the entire purpose of it. Or at least provide the illusion that it's avoiding regulation. I mean, obviously, it's, like you said, it's... it's inflation because if you put money into your dollar. I mean, you know, the dollar fluctuates on government policy. And the reason people started going to decentralized currencies, as far as I'm concerned, it's the reason I started doing it was because it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? And the, the only thing that affects the value of it is what somebody thinks, the, what the general consensus of society thinks the value for that thing is. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have anything to do with government policy or fucking inflation or tax rates or any of that. You know what I'm saying? It, it just, you know, it's decentralized. So no government can control it. And I think that's, that was what the biggest attraction to me was. And just as an investor, like, you know, I've got friends that they trade this stuff all day and I'm like, I would jump off a fucking roof. I don't have the fucking stamina for that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like if I lost, could you imagine if you lost everything in one day and then just were like, you were up but 20 million when, today, nothing today because you made a bad decision. But when, when, billionaires I did, are, I when billionaires are laundering money through it, like at what point do you say that's not okay? Like how do you, how do, you do that? I mean, billionaires launder through everything though. Exactly. But if we're, if we're but, truly starting like a decentralized way to get away from the big banks, to get away from like this like USSR, world, uh, baby. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I interrupted. I, I just wanted to highlight one thing Mike and MJ have both said. The point was that all money is made up. And, you know, we've heard people make comments that money is just made up, but Bitcoin is such a good example of this. Like, it's literally nothing. Like, think about what Bitcoin is. It is something typed on a keyboard that is now worth trillions of dollars. That's how crazy... That's all money is. Yeah. I have this argument all the fucking time. Yeah. Like, when's the last time you actually touched a physical $100 bill? I could send you money right now through Venmo, <laughs> through Cash App, through Zelle, and I'm never going to touch physical money neither are you. Money you know what I'm is, so it's, it's nice. all digitized. It's all made up zeros and ones. So how is that any different than crypto? It's crazy. I, I, I do want to see what Jaren has to say, but real quick, I will say the only appeal of any kind of cryptocurrency is the complete security of it because it's the fact that the passwords are so secure. Um, so wow. secure, in fact, lose your password, you have then lost your money, no matter how valuable it may be. And there are people who have lost millions of dollars. The original creators of Bitcoins are still sitting on addresses from 10 years ago and they haven't moved. And actually, if they do move, that would probably crash Bitcoin because 
the whole faith of that particular currency rests on this guy's anonymity and the fact that he can't be touched uh, and that most people think that he's dead uh, if it wasn't yeah. one person. Is but it, I will say, go ahead. I mean, how do you sit on that much and I can't? I'm just showing you guys what I did before the show started and everybody on here was like, cast that shit now. You know what I'm saying? This guy's sitting on billions for 10 years. And he's the 57th richest person in the world if he still controls it. He's got to be dead. There's no way. Just to tie Imagine the self-control you have to have to to fucking be like, I'm just going to let these billions just sit there for 10 years and not even fucking, not even check on it once. Like, what am I up to now? He's not only dead, he's he's been murdered, first of all. But yeah, second of all, I just wanted to tack on what you were saying and let you continue. But I think it's over 50% of Bitcoin is owned by uh, private banks, right? Like JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. Like, I think they own literally over 50% of Bitcoin. And they yeah. could, they could well, flex so this that is the, power on the entire industry at any moment they wanted to. So it's like all these people buying Bitcoin thinking they're taking, you know, power away from the banks. No, homie, you're consolidating much more power to them. Yeah, I think that um, what really comes out of this is not going to be any particular cryptocurrency because, you know, any partic- any one, even Bitcoin, the original, may completely crash to nothing and become worthless uh, because something else uh, takes its place. Uh, because what's really valuable here is the technology of the blockchain, which is actually pretty revolutionary. And I think that when it comes to things like NFTs, that could be a way for normal, like people who don't have wealth to copyright an image. Like there's a reason we don't all copyright memes when we make them is because to go through the copyright process would be ridiculous. But if you can literally just do it with a password to prove that you are the creator of this meme or whatever it is, like as simple as an image, you have now, I mean, that's what a lot of people think is going to be one of the best things about the blockchain technology is that it's going to counter deep fakes. Since deep fake video technology is getting so good, you could potentially fool people into thinking that any person did or said anything on video, this uh, cryptographic being able to sign something with your password and prove that it was you and you were the owner and creator of that particular piece of media, whether it's video, audio, whatever, that could be the potential to counter all the fakery that could go on with deep fakes. I'm going to start selling, I'm going to start making memes and selling them as NFTs. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Like you, can, you can copy, that's an easy way for you to copyright or just prove that you are the owner and creator or something. But it also is kind of the wet dream. Like if you talk to, if you guys were into conspiracy theories, especially in like the 90s, people had these ideas that the wealthy were secretly trying to create some satellite in space that, that housed all the financial records so that even if there was some kind of revolution here on Earth, their wealth is safe because it's all in computers after all. And it was like the beast was this satellite that floated around the Earth. And, and that's literally what blockchain technology is. It is as long as any computer in the world is running that is running this technology, all the financial records are safe. They just distributed that safety among the entire world. You're scaring me. I mean, so it kind of makes me think that Blockchain was created for the the bourgeoisie. Is that what we've all been? My point is, it doesn't even matter if it was created by the government or the wealthy people in secret. The principles of capitalism still make it follow the same trajectory that capitalism traditionally did, which is the wealth will eventually concentrate upward. And the the other beautiful thing about it is that, yeah, you may lose all your money if you don't have your password, but like. I think this actually is a, a thought that I'm stealing from an XKCD comic from when Bitcoin started to get popular like the first time. And somebody's saying, oh, I have millions of dollars in my Bitcoin wallet, but you can't get it because you don't know my password. And somebody just beats him with a $12 wrench until they get his password. Like the basic principles of capitalism still apply no matter what technology you attribute to it. 
I'm all so what is what does the paper trail have to do with it, right? Like the paper trail there has to show where that money comes from, where it goes. Like, isn't that uh, an upgrade, right? Well, like most things in an unregulated economy, I would say blockchain is in general. Well, there are also anonymous coins. Like I was saying before we started recording, there are ways you can then swap it out. Like, there's definitely a number of ways you can wash any kind of crypto coin and remove your identity from it, and then I mean, there's definitely ways to launch. That's a good point. I think Mike's, Mike's point about blockchain technology in general is more relatable to the arts. And you took the words out of my mouth with that is it can provide something that is reasonable and tangible for the arts to kind of get a hold on. But I'll say this much just insofar as crypto, I've invested in it since about 2014 and I don't believe in any of it. Uh, I believe that it was there because of 2008. Again, not to keep hitting that that thing on the head, but like Bitcoin emerged in 2009 directly as a result of the mismanagement of our economy. Absolutely. And I would say also to tack on to that, that um, and I keep standing this guy so hard, but he, he was just fucking amazing to me and to everyone he came in contact with. But David Graeber referred to these things as abstractions of capital. So it, and I'll keep it short, but basically, you know, money is only meant to do one thing. It's liquidity. It's, it's a way for us to exchange goods and services without a direct need for the other good or service that someone else has. Yes. You know, if you make shoes and I make soup, but I don't need shoes and you need soup, that's where money comes in, right? Bars. So everything else besides that is an abstraction of capital. Everything. Stocks, bonds, derivatives, Bitcoin, all of it. Every single stupid idea you come up with using money that is not related to that direct transaction is an abstraction. And it is designed to become cancerous over time. There is no appropriate use of money besides spending it or saving it. Outside of that, everything else is either reliant on someone else's labor, is imaginary, or is going to debase the currency entirely. There's only three outcomes for this. And that's something that capitalism thrives off of. So like, have I made money off of Bitcoin? Fuck yeah. Is Bitcoin fucking the environment? Fuck yeah. Is Bitcoin going to probably crash into oblivion after it hits fixed six figures and I sell it? Fuck yeah. Like, you know, there's bars. nothing behind any of this. It's this guy's all dropping fucking bullshit. bars. Holy shit. Dude, he does it all the time. Only we can do it. Hot fire. Dude, I fuck with this the so fucking man, dude. If you're hard. not using money to exchange for goods and services, the real things that mean something, and that includes art, money, is just being used to fuck you. Those are the only things it should be used for. Saving and spending. Outside of that, you're just screwing over your fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. Are you single? <laughs> I literally, I, I want to marry this dude right now. Like this dude's dropping fucking bars. Holy dude, that's that's Jared. Like this podcast is literally nothing but Jared and Cosper dropping bars, and then the rest of us making dick jokes. Yeah, buddy. That's what we're <laughs> I'm going to get my ass handed to me on the, the Stalin episode. But, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, Stalin, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Why? Oh, Why? And then Ross Putin, Ward. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's all, all right. Yeah. You guys educate me on something because, I mean, I, so maybe I've got a. Uh, fucked up view of what actual communism is because I've got a degree in philosophy. That's what I went to school for. So 
Hell yeah. Uh, you know, I study theologies and governments and I'm really politically active and I used to stand on the street corner and yell, but then I was like, Hey, I could probably make a difference more from the inside. So like mm-hmm. I joined the we campaign hard for Biden. We campaign hard for fucking Warnock and fucking Ossoff and fucking, yeah. we won all that shit, but I know fucking Sterling hates Biden. He talks shit about him all the time, but <laughs> my thing was, just like, um, you know, I mean, I hate to be one of the lesser of two evil guys, but like my thing was like, we had to get back on the road before we could drive forward and progress. You know what I'm saying? So I'm a progressive, you know, that's how I feel like my political mantras, you know what I'm saying? That's my ideology. Like I believe in all kinds of progressive things, but I also am a realist that we live in a capitalist society. So, and I own my own business. So I have to do capitalist shit all the time. You know what I'm saying? So uh, my thing with communism, and this is just how I always viewed it is, you know, because I've read, you know, fucking the Communist Manifesto and I've read Marx and Engels and fucking, all, you know, like I had to. I went to school for philosophy, you know. Yep. So my whole basic, like, idea is it looks great on paper, but in theory it doesn't work because you need a totalitarian society to enforce yes. the, uh, you know, like, if everybody works for the state, you've got to have soldiers going around making sure everybody's working for the state, right? Hell yeah. Okay, l- let me just l- let me hold things up. So first, this could be another three-hour goddamn conversation. But Mike got so excited. But let let let's let. No, I want to know. Yeah, let's 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 first go. Yeah, let let's first set the distance between say me and Jaren, and like like me for for instance for instance me me Mike and Ward uh, me Mike and Ward the three of us are what's what you would consider authoritarian communist, which we call tanky, which just sounds badass. It, it was meant okay. to be, it was meant to be a derivative term, but it sounds way, way cool. So we just own it. But that means that, okay. that we kind of believe in communism in the sense that it takes authority and it takes force. Kind of like what you're saying. Like it sounds like all good. You said was good actually. Yeah. It sounds good yeah. on paper. And the only way to do it is with a lot of force and basically fuck everyone that's against it. Like and not to go super deep, but you know you have like the Kulaks who refused to give up their uh, their farmland. They didn't want it to be collectivized. They wanted to keep it in their capitalist thing. And the USSR actually allowed the Kulaks to keep their farmland and be uh, individual, even within a collectivized society. But then when you know. Holomodor started coming towards and there started to be natural famines and they started saying, yo, Stalin, uh, we need more resources. And he's like, fuck all y'all die, motherfuckers. And maybe that's a super oversimplification, but... No, even as not a tanky, that's more or less what happened. Yeah. yeah okay, okay. And, and now where Jaren is, he is more in the anarcho-communist uh, realm, which we call anarchist, which means that he believes in you know liberty he believes in the lack of authority and he wants to get to a place where uh, we all take care of each other but not at the end of a gun like whereas authoritarian communism is like if 
if you're not willing to do it, like we have a solution. Um, yeah, libertarian communism is like, well, we're not going to kill you if you don't do it. So it's like that's that's kind of the distance. And it's like, you know, what, the argument you were just making right there is really similar to our position, which is it does sound good on paper and it does take effort and it does take authority. And it's like you're talking about Marx and Engels through the uh, lens of philosophy. But you have to keep in mind early Marx and then Marx post uh, political economy are two very different Marx. Like he he kind right. of. That's and true. not not to drop Hegel like in the mud like I constantly do like fuck that dude but you know Cosmer like that's that's only because I've never actually truly sat down and read Hegel but I throw him in the mud just because nerds love him but um, <laughs> but it's like Marx Marx eventually outgrew Hegelian dialectics and went more into a economics and that's when you know he started writing capital and he started really focusing right. that that you know philosophy was kind of and i hate to assume anything of marx but i feel like to a point philosophy was pointless to him and he cared about material needs like it's great to have all these theories but if you can't fucking eat what the fuck do these theories matter right. and that's kind of right. where where like me and mike and the other guys uh, our communism stands is fuck all these theories people have to eat people need to get shit done yeah mike jump in like just real quick, if there's any way I could just excuse authoritarian communism or the authoritarian position to anyone who's unfamiliar <laughs> with it and who just seems off put by it, because I get it. Like I get if you picture yeah, yeah. authoritarian communism, you picture like a scene that's in black and white in your head and you picture a bunch of people just drudging around with police on every corner, making them go to well, the how's that factory. I mean, how's that different than nationalized socialism like the Nazis then? Because they were kicking on doors too. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Oh, God, God damn. damn. Oh, no, we don't have time for this one. I'm sorry. Like, this is like... <laughs> yeah. First of all, nationalized socialism was never a thing in the Nazi party. No, the, I mean, fascism is the enforcement of capitalism. It's like yes. when capitalism starts to really go off the rails, then that's when you get fascism. That's when you subjugate by force any minorities and marginalized people that you were already subjugating to extract profit from them during normal capitalism like what we're living in now and what i was trying to get at is like if i was going to excuse authoritarian communism to anybody i would say that you're already living in the authoritarian capitalism you just have grown to accept it like there are already people who are being locked in prison just so we can exploit their labor there are people in the entire global south that we are exploiting their labor so that we can live this position here so what we are advocating for is used in the opposite direction, used against people who are wealthy, used against people who are right wing, people who are reactionaries, people who are fascists. So use the authoritarian measures against those same people and allow workers like actual working class people to control all of those institutions that would be using that authority. And that's all that communism really is. Yeah. Authority is just a tool and it depends on the motives of the state and how that authority is going to be used. Proletarian state is inherently different from a capitalist state. You know, yes. the motives See, and the mission is different. I fully believe that authority is bad, period. And I don't really yeah. care what incarnation it's in. I think that it needs to constantly prove itself to be worthy of maintaining. Bro, I, I think I'm going to preach, bro. I think I'm going to preach. I think I'm going to preach. 
Yeah. Honestly, that's, 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 that's how I feel too. Like man is not meant to govern man. You know yeah. what I'm saying? That's what like, I'm all fucking I mean, look, saying. In in some situations, I think it's necessary. Why is all these interviews? Right. Well, let me yeah. say that. Yeah. But we can we can. This is a whole. We I can't wait. Yeah, for the yeah. communism versus anarchism episode, I am fucking pumped. Yeah. Can I be there? Because I, I think we're, we're there, all going to have fun with it, honestly. <laughs> me, but, you know, there. I will say this is at the end of the day, anyone that's anti-capitalist, I am friends with, yeah. and then we'll figure the rest out later. But right. <laughs> me, me and Jaron have had like some of these conversations before, and what's most important to me is that when we think of authoritarian communism and anarchism as these two very separate things, I really don't think they are. I think they're the same thing and that they have a different timeline because authoritarian (laughs) communists, even if we believe in like what the USSR was building and that we should have authority to bring about communism, we eventually believe in dismantling that authoritarianism and even getting to the utopia that anarchists believe in. So I don't think... I don't think it's an mm-hmm. argument between us as far as, you know, what we ultimately believe in. We just have a slightly different view on the timeline. Basically. Yeah. 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 I view authority as a tool that is necessary to defend the socialist state from capitalist imperialism and internal reactionaries. Yeah. And I only believe that insofar as like the USSR was concerned, that in the effort to defend against capitalism, they were unable to control some of the identity politics within their region. So like the former Muslim countries that would literally still kill gay people, they couldn't stop that. Yes, they, they, were, spread, they were spread too thin. And that yeah. is my central problem with that centralized authority is like, yeah, can it combat capitalism? 100%. Can it still take care of all of the different people within it? No. It's tricky. Yeah, that's that's a that's a regional, really tough concept. Absolutely, it's it's damn near impossible to find a solution to. But that's why, as an anarchist, I know that other anarchists, if they see somebody beating on a gay dude, we're gonna go fucking stomp them. We're gonna stomp (laughs) their fucking teeth, and they're not gonna be able to chew for the rest of their life. (laughs) That's the authority that I like. Right. Which is authoritarianism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but Stalin couldn't do it, dog. Stalin couldn't do it. Yeah, and well, that, that brings up that the is another episode, <laughs> sir. I'm I'm working on it. The whole conversation of like, is there a truly a, a tolerant society? If you have to be tolerant of intolerance, but that's the whole thing i'm, I'm no, sure you yeah, that's the, yeah, the paradox of tolerance <laughs> yeah. no yeah, no eat shit and their fucking free speech bullshit no fuck that that's yeah, not no. free that's how i am too i always say the only thing i'm intolerant you don't you don't get that no. you don't get that yeah yeah me and mike have- me and mike agree on that point that is not included oh yeah yeah, yeah absolutely I, mean, I go to war with these trumpies on my facebook all the time and i'm like fucking look we can discuss uh, like how much taxes we need to spend on schools and shit. That's politics. What's not politics is racism or fucking, uh, you know, hating gay people and fucking, like, what's not politics is trying to tell another group of people that they're less than you for something they didn't have a choice and have anything to do with. That's not politics. And I will stomp on those motherfuckers all day. Yeah, absolutely. Fucking, anyway, I got a, I got a dip. I got a fucking. Yeah, me too. No, I mean we definitely got to wrap it up. We are yeah. over an hour <laughs> longer than we want to go. Can we just um real quick? I know. Uh, let's pretend that okay. we did this at the beginning and just do the plugs. Okay. MJ, you want to plug your uh, 
plug yourself there? Tell us where we can find you. Myself. What do you mean plug myself? Like you know, with the book. Just a, a quick, <laughs> quick synopsis on on yourself and links to anything you want to you know plug and if you have any websites or apps or anything you want. Oh, plug. Oh, yeah, yeah. Plug myself. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was like, wait, plug myself. What are you talking? Yeah, not like Gavin. Yeah, that's the <laughs> If you have an OnlyFans. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you have an OnlyFans, now is the time. It's me punching Nazis in the throat. <laughs> Kill me in. Kill me in. I'm down for that. Kill me in. Um, okay, so I'm MJ. I throw large-scale concerts and festivals, and I co-own a platform here with Chris Tanner, our other guest tonight, called Artist Hunt, which you can find at artisthunt.io. Uh, let's see, what else do I do? I've done everything in the music business that there is to do, and I'm still doing it, and I've been doing it for a long time. And you can follow me on Instagram at MJOFATL. M-J-O-F-A-T-L. Oh, yeah. Chris, you want to plug yourself and your stuff? Yeah, I'm Chris Tanner. Um, so I've been a DJ, producer, uh, all-around kind of music industry person for the past 10 years. Uh, the last four years been focusing more on music tech. Like uh, MJ mentioned, I co-founded Artist Hunt uh, with a few other startups and am starting a uh, actually a stream based on music technology called Music Tech Insider that should be live by the time you guys hear this. And yeah, that's about it. Cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Jaron, you want to play your website and then you can bounce? Sure. Uh, so my website is jaronperlman.com. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. Uh, both of my books are available there, and the third one is coming out this year. Oh, yeah. Blaine, did you want to uh, play your studio? <laughs> um, okay, yeah, this episode I will. So uh, my Instagram is my name, B-L-A-Y-N-E-B-I-U-S. That's where you can see my tattoo work. Also, if you have not seen Exit Through the Gift Shop, it is a Banksy documentary. I would also recommend oh. Banksy Does New York in relations to this episode. So watch that shit. It's fucking dope. Watch Exit to the Gift Shop on Edibles. It's life changing. Coming on a future episode of what? What was it called, MJ? Uh, edible work. Edible. <laughs> edible work. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I do movie uh, reviews on edibles. Cool. Thanks Enjoy everyone. Oh yeah. So the Twitter is at Turn Leftist Pod, and I just uh, I post a bunch of bullshit. It's kind of funny uh, sometimes. I almost accidentally cancel myself and I immediately delete that tweet. <laughs> Go ahead, Ward. You want to plug yourself? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y, and at my backup, Millennial Leftist, common spelling. Cool. Uh, and then for anything else, uh, people can just check out a link tree. That's link tree slash turn leftist. I did want to plug. Um, and we only plugged it one at a time before, but I kind of want to plug our Patreon just to put it out there. Uh, we do have one subscriber. I just want to shout out Jay Reese. Yes. Thank you for doing that. We have no creative. Like, uh, one Patreon. We have no premium content whatsoever for our patrons, but uh, we do have. We one dedicate person. this episode to you. There's no I mean, seriously, we should have shout them out. We should have shouted out this person a lot longer ago. I mean, they subscribed to us a couple weeks ago. Like I said, we have one application, so thank you very much for that. But I do also want to shout out just because I was floating the idea with you guys in the group chat about doing a second episode a week uh, as premium content and doing like a $5 a month subscription. So I would actually like it if people hearing this reached out to us and let us know if they 
I don't know, I think that that's something they would be into if that would be worthwhile, uh, if we should even bother trying to do that. But yeah, uh, yeah just throwing it out there as a concept. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking we would even keep it the same format as we do for this um, and just literally have twice the content for people who are into it. But uh, yeah, shoot us a DM or uh, hit us up in the Discord and let us know what you would think of that as a concept. But other than that, I think we can wrap it up there. Thank you guys all so much for joining us. Blaine, thank you for coming back. MJ and Chris, thank you guys for coming on and uh, teaching us about the industry. It's a really good uh, conversation with all of you guys. So thank you so much for doing yeah, it. I had a great time. Thanks for having me, for sure. Yeah, man. Absolutely, man. Awesome that hanging out. Good. Well, thank you're you all. Going to call you what guys dirty. Like your dog. <laughs> dirty capitalists for taking money from people and trying to. Actually, we're on the fence about it. We may not even do it at all. We're still wondering if it's the right path to take. So, yeah, we're trying to make money off art. Like, isn't this art? Like, what? Well, it's all right. We're going to NFT each episode then. And then the (laughs) You can only, only one person can listen. I don't know. Mike, Mike advertised it as entertainment. So, oh, God. And it's also a little bit educational. So, too. Piquito. Hello. Oh Thank you guys. This has been a lot of fun for real. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this was a good. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Be safe.